I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. Welcome to School of Everything Else. Red Dwarf 5. This is the first show we're recording on this British sci-fi cult classic TV show, and we're going to start with season five for a number of reasons. Season one from 1988 wasn't all that fantastic. In fact, it didn't really hit its stride as a show until season three. There's still some great bits in one and two, and there's some quite thought-provoking sci-fi from the beginning, but it's not the best place to start for a comedy. You can quite easily start late and go back. Two, the run from season four to six is widely regarded by fans of the show to be a golden age. At six episodes per season, this was 18 cracking examples of everyone firing on all cylinders with almost no fat or filler. And number three, this was the first season I ever saw back when I was 12 in 1992, which is both the perfect age and the perfect year to discover it. The setup was so simple back then that I could just pick it up and love it immediately. I then read up on the previous four seasons, which in the UK we called series, from a paperback program guide which I read from cover to cover on a long plane flight. We have thus decided to make series five the ideal jumping off point for you lot. If you don't like these six episodes at this peak of creativity, you'll probably never like it. And with us, while I assumed a bunch of 40-something bearded British guys like me would be interested in guesting, we ended up with two American women. Hello to Hollywood actress Maya Santandrea. Smegging great to be here. <laughs> it's going to be so weird, it just hearing, weird you hearing Americans say Smeg. doing that, it but really okay, does. we'll try to get used to it. <laughs> and also, for the first time on our show, one of our patrons, Kat Esman. Hello, Kat. Hello, thanks for having me. And making up the 40-something Scottish guys quota, we have from our Resident Evil shows, as well as being the man who plays Donald McTavish in New Century, so technically he and Maya have shared a scene in the prologue of Uncivil Outlaw, it's Derek Ritchie. Yeah, would anybody like some toast? <laughs> That's a talky toaster gag, folks. Uh, to fill in the majority of listeners, I'm going to guess the majority for whom this will be a new world. I'm going to go to Wikipedia for an extremely efficient series overview to get us in the right place. I started with Wikipedia and then I kind of added my own uh, wording to it. So TLDR slobs in space. In more detail, the main setting of the series is the mining spaceship Red Dwarf. In the first episode, set sometime in the late 22nd century, a radiation leak kills all but one of the 169 crew members. The lone survivor is Dave Lister, the lowest-ranking technician on board. Just before the leak, Dave, played by Craig Charles, was discovered smuggling a pregnant cat on board, and when he refuses to give up her location, he is condemned to be put in suspended animation for many months without pay. His sentence is extended. A little. Quite a lot, actually. The time it takes for the radiation to fade is three million years. He's brought back out by Holly, the ship's computer, then played by Norman Lovett. 
Hal, uh, sorry, <laughs> Freud, Hull has gone it's a bit... It's not an accident. <laughs> <laughs> They're dead, Dave. Hull has gone a bit bonkers over the long drift away from Earth and has estimated that Lister is, in fact, the last surviving human. Good morning, Dave. It is now safe for you to emerge from stasis. Have we just got in? Please proceed to the drive room for debriefing. They're dead, Dave. Who is? Everybody, Dave. What, Captain Hollister? Everybody's dead, Dave. What, Todd Hunter? Everybody's dead, Dave. <laughs> What's Selby? They're all dead. Everybody's dead, Dave. Peterson isn't, is he? Everybody is dead, Dave. Not Chen. Gordon Bennett, yes, Chen, everybody. Everybody's dead, Dave. Rimmer. He's dead, Dave. Everybody is dead. Everybody is dead, Dave. Wait. Are you trying to tell me everybody's dead? <laughs> Should have never let him out in the first place. <laughs> Fortunately, Dave is not alone. His cat, Frankenstein, survived in the ship's cargo hold, and over the three million years, her descendants evolved into humanoid, pointy-fanged sapiens. One single example of their breed, played by Danny John Jules, remains on the ship and becomes his friend, though he holds humans in contempt as scruffy apes and as is himself a fashion-obsessed preening dimwit. Actually, he calls us monkeys, which are not the same as apes. Uh, it's also erroneous. We aren't monkeys. <laughs> Holly also brings back the one man who can keep Lister sane. Question mark. His pain in the ass superior officer Arnold Rimmer, a chicken soup vending machine repairman with an absurdly inflated ego, a distaste for everything Lister does, and a deep burning resentment for how overlooked he has always been. Professionally speaking, romantically speaking, socially speaking, everything. Rimmer, played by Chris Barry, died when the radiation killed the crew, but he exists now as a hologram uh, that only Rim Lister can see and touch. No, sorry. <laughs> a, a hologram unable to touch everything around him, hence the capital H on his forehead. At the beginning of Series 2, the Dwarfers meet Crichton, a mechanoid butler marooned on an asteroid and tragicomically tending to a literal skeleton crew. It's Skeleton League! Lister taught him to be a little more human, and he departed, only to return, recast as Robert Llewellyn, as a mainstay from the beginning of Season 3 onward. Holly also underwent a gender flip from this third season and was played by Hattie Haydridge for three, four, five. Holly wasn't in six, and then Norman Lovett returned in eight. The plan from the very beginning in Red Dwarf, from the first episode, is to return to Earth, but they have a long way to go. Along the way, they encounter phenomena such as time distortions, rogue androids, mutant diseases, bioweapons, and strange life forms. Notably, every single one of these phenomena, and I hadn't thought about this, but it's true, appear to stem from Earth. A remit of the series appears to be that there were to be no aliens in the writing, an aspect which makes the world seem both vast and empty and existentially overwhelming and yet strangely comforting. There's only us, yes? What about the Gelfs? The Gelfs are genetically engineered life forms, genetically engineered by... People from Earth. Humans. Oh. 
Okay. Good question, but I had again, I hadn't thought about this too much, but yeah, uh, yeah it all seems to stem from Earth. They, although for some reason they go to Titan and they go to various places to mm. party and to set down, and they all seem to be sort of colonized by humans, mm. but we never like meet. There are no Martians and there are no Quagars, you know, other planets that are completely different species, yeah. apart from obviously the ones that have evolved adjacent to us. Mm. Um, Despite the pastiche of science fiction used as a backdrop, Red Dwarf is primarily a character-driven comedy with science fiction elements used as complementary plot devices. By this point, the writers had... As in, by season five, the writers had a really good handle on the characters. Lister was your everyman, but amusingly scummy with it. Rimmer was a tight ass and entertainingly pedantic. Crichton was desperate to please and confused by human behaviour. He's kind of your Mr. Data. Holly was kind of a sardonic, hands-off den mother, explaining whatever Crichton couldn't. And the cat was there with disparaging and boneheaded comments, although the cat very rarely... I think I've never seen an episode that was mostly set around the cat, apparently there is one in the later seasons mm, yeah. which makes sense considering how shallow he he's astonishingly shallow i'm amazed he survived this long as a character but it's just that he's got great comic timing the first eight seasons ran on the bbc for 11 years from 1988 to 1999 after that the show went into hibernation before being resurrected on british channel dave from 2009 to 2016 Very with mini yeah dave with mini series 9 back to earth and series 10 to 12 most recently there was a tv movie the promised land involving some of the cats race Sharon and I haven't revisited season seven onwards for many long years, and we haven't seen anything after, like, Back to Earth. Um, but I don't even think you've seen Back to Earth. But we're probably going to give all of the new episodes a go as we're feeling nostalgic watching this, though I'm told they're a mixed bag. So the following six episodes from season five, whilst definitely not the most dramatic, and they don't really put all of these characters through the bigger emotional ringers, like, you know, if you want a really good bottle episode with Dave and Arnold, marooned from season three. These are not so much the drama ones. These are just really funny episodes, which makes them great entry points. Uh, and they're also some of the most inventive of Red Dwarf. And we are going to discuss our favorite bits and details and character beats from each one. Yeah? Anything you want to say? Yeah, one of the reasons this is uh, one of my favourite seasons is the through line of the psychological investigation hmm. of the characters. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's definitely there. It's like, it, it's, it falls in line with stuff that happens in 6 and 4 mm. as well. Yeah. Uh, and we'll definitely be refer referencing back and forth. And if we ever do more Red Dwarf episodes, we're going to have to kind of treat this as, as one that came first rather than like following it chronologically. So there'll be a bit of time jumping. What were your experiences growing up with Red Dwarf? Because, I mean, I'm assuming you didn't all catch it when you were 12. I actually started it when I was about eight, honestly. Uh, it's actually super interesting. Um, so in America, we have public television. Mm -hmm. And Iowa public television has always been really big on British content. Mm -hmm. There was a really good article I read about how um, we helped say, like, Iowa public television has the longest run of Doctor Who continuously. <laughs> because we kept running it after you guys stopped. But in our house on Saturday nights, we would watch Red Green, which was in Canada. Red Dwarf, we would watch... The 10 minutes of 
Jack Horkheimer's Stargazer, where he would talk about what was happening in the stars right now. And then Doctor Who would start, and Mom and Dad would send us to bed because it was weird. <laughs> How was Red Dwarf <laughs> not weird, but Doctor Who was? I don't know. The two shows have a lot in common, actually. They've got they creaky British sets and creaky say, British humour. Props made of cardboard. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, uh, Red Dwarf is more of a comedy with sci-fi, and, and uh, uh, Doctor Who's more of a sci-fi with some comedy. But um, yeah, that, I think uh, that was the line. Actually, was that it was funny, and also by the time Red, by the time Doctor Who came on, it was almost midnight. Oh right, yeah. geez, okay. Because yeah, Red Green would start at nine, so you'd have like an hour of that, then two episodes of Red Dwarf, and then. So you were able to stay up until nearly midnight at the age of eight. I mean, I think Mom and Dad had gone to bed. <laughs> <laughs> Your parents I was sound rad. To my mom about it uh, before this podcast, and she was joking about how she's like, "Don't tell them I let you stay up that late." I just said she sounds rad. It's like, well, make she sure is. you go to bed before midnight, honey. You're eight years old. No, mom was like an old school Trekkie, so nice. we always were encouraged to watch the nerdy things. <laughs> this is uh, again. I would also describe this as being like uh, if the Starship Enterprise, all sleek and beautiful and clever, was just sort of floating through, you know, flying through space at great speed. Red Dwarf would be the shitty mining ship that just they breeze right by and go. Let's not land there and talk to anyone because they're morons. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's kind of uh, um, how they, they play Hollow Ship. It's, it's a parody of the Starship Enterprise. I grew up with Red Dwarf when I was younger, so it's kind of interesting because for me, when you're young, you just watch the episodes and you kind of laugh a lot mm-hmm. because the humour is quite clever in that there's a lowest common denominator which works. And that worked when I was young because the puns were quite good the way that they talked I found quite funny and the kind of metaphorical jokes that they made was very Hitchhiker's Guide and all that sort of stuff so that appealed to me but interestingly the older I've gotten and the more that I've watched it the more that I see how much of a psychology aspect there is to it that you don't realise when you're younger Mm. and becomes more apparent to me especially in the case of I'm sure we'll get onto it as we discuss the episodes. In the case of Rimmer, mm-hmm. it is surprisingly focused on him more than you'd expect it to be. There's two episodes out of these six which are very Rimmer. No, yeah. three. That's what we'll get onto. But I, I found I found it a surprisingly intense focus on how he perceives many things to be the kind of cornerstone of this series mm. in a way that I wasn't really expecting actually uh you mentioned uh hitchhikers there that this fee i I never actually got to see the hitchhikers guide to the galaxy tv show and when i finally caught it around about uh the time the uh, movie came out i was like oh this is like this looks exactly like it was filmed on the set of the original red dwarf it's got that same Again, that that uh, if if you filmed it in between yeah. uh, Doctor Who and, and and Red Dwarf, it would make perfect sense. It's, and it's Galloping kind of Galaxies that, as well. Yeah, it's got that classic BBC eighties look of 
just enough money to make it work, <laughs> but not quite enough money to make you believe it. <laughs> you can tell when things got moved from BBC Two to BBC One because all of a sudden the background got a lot shinier. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, oh we've got money now, haven't you? Yeah, interestingly, when they actually injected Red Dwarf with money for season seven, it became less good. Maya, uh, what was your experience? So I came to Red Dwarf a little bit later than some of you, I think. Mm -hmm. We had BBC shows that ran on public television when I was a kid as well. But from the ages of like 8 to probably 13, I was more in the camp of a lot of Faulty Towers, a lot of Monty Python, and Are You Being Served, and shows like that. So those were kind of the shows I had when I was a kid, which I think kind of helps when later on you get introduced to something like Red Dwarf and it feels kind of familiar even mm-hmm. if you didn't necessarily see it when you were a child. Um, so the the story for me is that in, in my freshman year of college, I became uh, very good friends with a gentleman who is still a very good friend of mine. His name is Richard and his adoptive parents happen to be from England. So they introduced the show to him at a very young age And then when we met up in college, you know, around the age 17, 18, we started watching it together. So he was kind of my way of of being introduced to the show. And uh, (laughs) so, you know, at that age, it was just kind of like this absurd thing. We'd get together Friday, Saturday nights uh, in the interest of the fact that my mother may listen to the show at some point. (laughs) uh, I can neither confirm nor deny but there may have been, may have been, a tall glass of water involved. A couple of tall glasses of water. A <laughs> couple of tall glasses of water. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> and we would get together and watch various episodes of Red Dwarf. We rarely watched them in chronological order. Usually we would just kind of cherry pick episodes that we wanted to watch here and there. But... From that point on, from pretty much young adulthood on, I've been a huge fan of the show and have continued to watch it and enjoy it. And there are still episodes, you know, throughout seasons, especially seasons four and five. I think those are probably my favorites that I still will go back to and watch to this day. And I know them almost word for word. And I will still be like crying with laughter. Like I'm physically incapacitated with how much I'm laughing. (laughs) Because I love this show so much. <laughs> well, that is fantastic to hear. I, I've always imagined growing up in the 90s that Americans would be like, Red Dwarf? No, I've never seen it. And they actually, you know, fans will know that there, was, there were two pilots made for an American attempt at doing Red Dwarf. Um, mm. The baffling thing about this was that they were talking about like, 36 episodes per season. It's like, that's that's all the good episodes of Red Dwarf in one season. Um, and and it was, it was a completely different type right? of, of humour. It was it was still written by the, uh, uh, the, the British writing team, but they were trying to hone in on sort of American 90s sitcom things. So like, uh, I'll, I'll, you're going to have to be my canned laughter track, every, all of you, you guests. Um, there was like, uh, uh, it was a guy, Lister, ra- rather than being a Liverpoolian um, was this sort of handsome guy who turned down the role of Joey in Friends. And, you know, when he was told by Holly, uh, played by Jane Leaves, Daphne from Frasier, you know, you've been asleep for three million years. 
Um, also, maybe she said it in America. So like, no, You've no, been asleep was, for three million years. Yeah. And he was like, my baseball card collection must be worth a fortune. <laughs> must be worth a fortune. To be fair, you deliver it better than he did. <laughs> oh, yeah. ouch. Anyway, but so, so it, it, they, they weren't great. And frankly, it becoming an American TV, it would have just gotten cancelled. You know, like the, the, the way American TV works, it's amazing if a show actually survives beyond season one. Mm. So, I mean, even if it had made it, it wouldn't have made it. Uh, and the weird thing was, though, that they actually brought Crichton across because he was, uh, Robert Llewellyn was seasoned at doing a, a sort of fresh Canadian accent. And so uh, it would have eased Americans in to the actual humour that way. Uh, and honestly, I didn't realise he was British for ages. Yeah. <laughs> That's how convincing it Until is. Until you hear him talking on the backstage stuff. Mm. I think um, my experience is probably. Oh, Welsh, very sorry, similar. Llewellyn. <laughs> no, he does have a, an English accent. Mm. Um, my experience is, is, for the most part, going to be very similar to yours and, and Derek's, I think, that I, in that I saw it on BBC Two mm. in my very early teens um, and then on multiple reruns on, like, the Sci-Fi Channel and Dave in mm. my mid to late teens. And also, talking about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I read um, two or three of the Red Dwarf novels, which were, I believe, mostly written by um, Doug Naylor. Mm -hmm. And there's one in particular, Better Than Life, which builds on the uh, Suicide Squid story, which we'll talk about here. But the tone of those novels and the, the way they were written was very Hitchhikers. Mm. It was much more in-depth in terms of the world and, and how things were put together and what was going on. Less stagey. And much less stagey. Very, very funny um, and extremely moving in places. But they, mm. were, uh, they were pretty awesome. I might see if I can try and recover some of those, in fact. There is, especially if you watch it from the beginning, a melancholy about Red Dwarf, a sense of uh, isolation and, and, like I said, existentialism mm. that's sort of threaded throughout it. Like, it's, it's, if you start with five, then it's just like this group of smegheads hanging out together and, and you don't think too deeply on the emptiness. But if you watch it, uh, you know, at length, especially in in order, you get this sort of growing picture of uh, kind of a, a quiet desperation in Lister that he like if he finally gets back to Earth, what's even going to be there? Yeah, and that's yeah. that's what a lot of Better Than Life was kind of built around. Mm. But I think that melancholy is it's there in the background. It depends what you're looking at. If you're looking mm. at the characters and you're listening to the jokes, you're maybe not going to get it so much, but if you listen to the music and you look at that endless expanse of nothingness that's outside the windows, that's where that mm. that permeated into the walls sense of what's behind all of this uh, is. It, and that is extremely British. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's a weird comic tragedy that doesn't emphasise the tragedy as much as it could. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and on one of the uh, shows, I think, that's uh, uh, a descendant of Red Dwarf is uh, Futurama, which came in around about the time it went into hibernation. It's uh, like a smarter, tighter... Futurama, especially those first few seasons, really pops. And it feels like... 
both shows kind of got extended and brought back because people love them so much and then they both kind of like strained at the boundaries of uh, how far they can exist and it's almost like the I love the fact that Red Dwarf is still being filmed and they're still putting stuff together because it suggests that the people making it have gotten to a, a late stage in their life or a, at least a middle late stage and realized this was the best thing they ever did and they just want to keep on doing it. Mm-hmm. I sympathize. Not to mention the fact that it is exceedingly appropriate for where we find ourselves currently. Indeed. Marooned three million years that, from Earth. That sort of... Isolation, and you don't know how long mm. it's going to go on for. This whole thing started because we went back and watched the episode Quarantine, yeah. which is a little on the nose. Mm. But uh, yeah, us without our Mister Flibble. Um, <laughs> also, by the way, I should I should have known that uh, Robert Llewellyn uh, was you know from the British Isles when he performed as Sparehead Three with his very on point Northern accent. If I don't need no bugger to look after me, oh, hark at him, ordering his own heads around. That nails the uh, Northern mentality, the, specifically the old Northern mentality. Right, so the first episode, uh, we're going to try and keep this like 15 minutes per episode. We'll, you know, give or take. Um, Hollow Ship. I'll give you a quick summary and then a brief thing about what, you know, how the episode was received. Holoship. Rimmer is summoned to a snooty holographic starship enterprise uh, who solved frustration eons ago by arranging their culture around scientific discovery and casual sex. He begins to fall in love with an accommodating officer named Nirvana Crane, played by Jane Horrocks, and he desperately wants to stay. That's the synopsis. The episode was considered the worst in the series by fans, having a 0.2% rating on the Red Dwarf's magazine poll, with its out-of-place moment of pathos at the end of the episode. Sci-Fi Dimensions described it as less like Red Dwarf and more like a rejected Star Trek episode. It's one of my favourites. I love this one. shocked me because i too i thought this was one of the like it was a very good episode yeah at the beginning uh they're watching uh, it's very important that they're watching basically casablanca only they didn't pay the license for it yeah uh which was uh, referenced in an earlier episode camille when Crichton falls in love with a shapeshifter uh and they, like they directly finish it much like in it with a uh, casablanca reference and this is the makers of the show acknowledging that, it, that it's got its classic status for a reason and there is a like, even lister is in tears at the end because he you know he, he's sort of swept up in the idea that uh that this guy would give up everything for the woman he loves and lister's been pining for a woman named christine kachansky for years he was trying to make something work with on Red Dwarf, and it, it never quite worked out, and they've kind of encountered each other in various time-displaced ways in between time, but again, it's the, the idea is, up until this point, was to keep Lister as single as possible and have him pine. Um, but Rimmer has no time for this story and scoffs at it immediately. I kind of think this is what I kind of classed as the first stage of the River series arc, mm-hmm. for want of a better phrase. It didn't start earlier? Or do you mean the first stage of the series arc just for this season? Just for this season, okay, I cool, should cool. say. Right. Um, because this is a, it's effectively a love story for a man who has so many neurotic issues. He was genuinely just unlikable for anybody. Hmm. Rumour exists in a vacuum where he is both the most important person 
but also the one that is the most insecure all at the same time. Mm. And this, effectively what this episode is meant to show you is that he is capable of more than you can perceive um, because he, he goes onto the ship, he falls in love with somebody, he has to face the test to stay on the ship, but it's against the person that he has fallen in love with. And through, through that process, he, he learns about what he can and cannot do, what he is capable of. Well, she realises that he's the one, well, that, that she's going up against him uh, in, in order to play dead man's boots because mm. he can't just get on the crew any other way. And she gives up her place, ergo her life and her existence for him so that he can have what he wants. And that smacks Rimmer right in the soul because no one's ever done anything that nice for him. Mm. And I really wish that they'd, they'd been able to expand on this. And seemingly the audience were like, nope. <laughs> well, no, I think it, they do expand on it, but not quite in the same way. This is, uh, Derek is absolutely spot on. This is like the seed of where Rimmer's uh, character development goes throughout this season. Mm-hmm. And the um, the fact that this woman, Nirvana, who is played by the superb Jane Horrocks, oh my God, she's hilarious. Like, even her hair is hilarious. <laughs> giant holographic beehive. <laughs> absolutely. Um, Constant guilt-free sex. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Her delivery is it's so good, astounding. Well, thank you, Commander, for a most fascinating afternoon. It's been most fascinating. Perhaps if you're not in any great rush, Mr. Rimmer, we could retire to my quarters and have sex for a few hours. That was just unbelievable. It's never been like that before. Was it okay? It was different. Different? You make love like a Japanese meal. Small portions, but so many courses. (laughs) (laughs) We must dress and go now. Look, Nirvana, what I'm trying to say is... Please, don't say anything. I hope you didn't get me wrong just then. That meant nothing to me. Truly, less than nothing, really. Good. We may as well have been playing tennis. As it should be. I, uh, don't suppose you fancy a tie-break? <laughs> I'm sorry. I've got things I should do. Niet problemski. You know, we usually talk. What do you talk about? Oh, research, new theories, mission profiles... I'm sorry, I must have seemed very ignorant. I hardly said anything apart from... Geronimo. (laughs) Grass? Transmit. Privacy off. Commander, some amusing news. Stocky has chosen you to meet our guest's challenge. But the... this issue with Rimmer and this even if you've not seen any of the characters before and you don't know what their dynamic is Rimmer kind of personifies that there's a line in Bridesmaids where um, uh, Melissa McCarthy says to Kristen Weig you're your problem Annie you're also your solution and 
Rimmer is like the personification of that concept. He is his own worst enemy. He undermines himself at every turn. And which comes into play rather specifically in, in this very season. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, and it gives you this sort of brilliantly encapsulated, oh, that's who this guy is. OK, this is going to be funny. Mm. Right. And he makes excuses all the time, too. He very rarely takes responsibility for anything that he perceives as being bad happening in his life. It's always, you know, the Space Corps wouldn't accept me. My parents wouldn't accept me. My brothers were so much better at everything that I was, and they were so naturally good at things, and I actually had to work at it, but nobody ever... He very often shoves responsibility onto somebody else. Mm. And this is a good example of where he actually has to take some of that on himself. He not only has to have the emotional maturity to recognize the fact that someone has made a sacrifice for him in a very selfless way, but he also then has to take on the responsibility for himself to say, you know what, the right thing to do is actually for me to give up my spot on this hollow ship, even though it's my dream come true, even though this is everything I've ever wanted, it's meaningless without the person who gave this thing to me. And who made this ultimate sacrifice. So he has to take it on himself to say, this is the right thing to do is for me to to give this up for her now. It's a total catch-22 situation. Uh, mm-hmm. in, in any version of reality, after five minutes on that holoship, everyone else would have sniffed out that there's no possible way he belongs there. Mm-hmm. Every, it's, a, it's a ship of super geniuses who are also incredibly conceited, it yeah. seems. Well, the, this is the great thing about Rimmer. I mean, Rimmer's conceited, but he's not a genius. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> the one neurosis that he doesn't seem to have is imposter syndrome. Yeah. Because he is so ego egomaniacal is not quite the right word he's so egocentric that he believes that he is great at everything it's just that nobody will ever give him a chance and what happens in this is first off nirvana accepts him then she games the system so that uh, the enlightenment has to accept him onto the crew mm. and then he's put in the position where for the first time in his life he gets to make a meaningful choice about mm. his career and that, I think, is the basis for all of his growth going forwards, because on this one occasion, he got to make a proper choice. I have a note that's basically exactly what Maya said, which is that this is everything that Rimmer thought he wanted in life. Mm. Like, mm. it absolutely is, like, everything he's ever acted like or wanted is this ship, and it, he decides not to go with it, and I think that's actually, like, a huge moment of character growth and the whole I, I agree a lot of this season is a very rimmer heavy season yeah it really and is I think, I think the the interesting thing for the episode as a whole is effectively he gets to that point of decision up to that point he is effectively faking it all the way mm. he he has a mind is, meld which makes him into yeah. so, so he so, he cheats too a super <laughs> genius uh, who I mean, that, uh, speaks that's, that's the thing it's um he he gets help from inside to kind of get himself established he does a mind meld for him to be able to oh, no, sorry. The a mind patch uh, mind a patch, mind patch yes. a mind um, patch you insane i was thinking of vulcan so, sorry so he um he's effectively he is cheating or attempting to subvert 
up until the point he has to make the choice, which is the only moment in the whole episode that he does something without actually having to pretend. Hmm. Mm. It's Whereas his one that, honest decision. Yeah, that, that's when the real rumour, to a degree, kind of comes out. Although I will say, I did find intelligent rumour incredibly hilarious for a good couple of years. <laughs> <laughs> Crichton! <laughs> Just thinking. Assuming, of course, we're not dealing with five-dimensional objects in a basically Euclidean geometric universe, and given the essential premise that all geomathematics is based on the hideously limiting notion that one plus one equals two, and not as Astermeyer correctly postulates that one and two are in fact the same thing observed from different precepts. <laughs> The shape described by Sidis must therefore be a polydried doc decohedron, a hexahedroadicon, a dibidolihedecadodron. <laughs> Everything else is polyphon, isn't that so? Really? This is, just shifting away from the, the character drama for a moment, the comedic sequences in this one are outstanding. Oh, I... The the <laughs> one of my favourite moments in the entire show from start to finish is Lister's interactions with uh Binks. Binks uh, to enlightenment. Turns up at the beginning to investigate this ship that's uh, that's come alongside. Yeah. They've taken Mr. Rimmer. Sure, they've taken Mr. Rimmer. Quick, let's get out of here before they bring him back. <laughs> Binks to enlightenment have arrived on the Dedelict. Confirm initial speculation. There is absolutely nothing of any value or interest here. It's one of the old class two ship to surface vessels, the very model, in fact, that was withdrawn due to major flight design flaws. Crew three. One series, 4,000 mechanoid, almost burnt out. Give it maybe three years. Nothing of salvageable value. Ah, Phyllis Sapiens, bred from the domestic house cat and about half as smart. Uh, no value in future study of this species. What have we here? A human being, or a very close approximation. <laughs> Chronological age, mid-twenties. Physical age, 47. <laughs> Grossly overweight, unnecessarily ugly. Otherwise would recommend it for the museum. Apart from that, of no value or interest. Listed to Red Dwarf. We have an odd midst a complete smegpot. <laughs> Brains in the anal region. Chin absent, presumed missing. <laughs> Genitalia, small and inoffensive. <laughs> of no value or interest. Thanks to enlightenment, evidence of primitive humour. <laughs> the human has knowledge of irony, satire and imitation. With patient tuition, could maybe master simple tasks. Listed to Red Dwarf. Displays evidence of spoiling for a rumble. <laughs> Seems unable to grasp simple threats. With careful pummeling, could possibly be sucking tomorrow's lunch through a straw. Thanks to enlightenment, the human is under the delusion that he is somehow able to bestow physical violence to a hologram. Lister to Red Dwarf. The intruder seems to be blissfully unaware that we have a rather sturdy hollow whip in the munitions cabinet. Unless he wants his dirty air minced like burger meat. You better be history in two seconds flat. Thanks to enlightenment, recon mission complete. Transmit with speed. Enlightenment quickly, please. What it also lays down is, and I think this is one of the things that kind of got missed in the translation to the American show, is that 
Lister is inherently funny because of Craig Charles's accent. <laughs> oh yeah, his accent is so amazing. It's it's great, and that's a uh, is Liverpool, right? He is yeah. he's he a Liverpudlian, yeah. a scouser. Yeah, like one hundred percent Liverpool. But yeah, his his way of delivering his lines, and I mean the writing is very tight as well. That certainly helps. That. Mm. The delivery is so good and the banter is so believable and it's so in character with all these, you know, the four main characters in the in the cast of the show. Or I should say five, including Holly. Mm. Um, And and the slang that they use is absolutely ridiculous. Making up words when they can. Exactly. But it works so well for for these people and their delivery just so spot on. It's incredibly funny. And it's hard when you're young and watching it and you're American and I thought half of their slang was just normal British slang. What's a smeg pot? <laughs> I would use smeg at school and I, no one knew what I thought. No one knew what I, was I thought it was the same thing as saying like bloody, which here is like no big deal. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I, I did enjoy the whole send up of, because the uniforms on the other ship are basically Star Trek uniforms. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're the biggest kind of pastiche of them. The fact they've got the little symbol that looks a little bit like a live long and prosper, but not quite, but enough that you go, okay, see what you did there. Rimmer's whole yeah. uniform this whole season uh, seems to have been upgraded to a Star Trekky type thing. It was yeah, green that, for season green, four and three, I think. Mm. And it's it's got this little. It's still got that badge communicator thing that has no direct use, mm. but it, it just that kind of hammers home the whole. This is a bit Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. This is this is Star Trek if it, if Britain was in charge of the Federation. No oh God, no. <laughs> Britain in the nineties maybe, but I'm not sure about now. It's it's just that that combination of. Utterly colonial, which I think is where a lot of the... There are no aliens out there. It's Mm. just things that stem from Earth, which is a very colonial attitude. Uh, Utterly colonial and also utterly crap. A bit crap is a a really good way of describing most of the things that the boys and the dwarf encounter. Mm, Absolutely. It's also really important that they don't have a woman with them all the way up until season seven, unless we're counting Holly, who, being a computer... I mean, it's... It's not the same. It's, it's it's not the same, although I would say that Holly very effectively fills that role of the one girl. Yeah. Because the one girl, which mm. we have discussed frequently in, in um, turns up in genre movies that are effectively about a little gang of boys who have one girl that they will allow to hang mm-hmm. around with them. Generally speaking, she is separate from them for some reason. And in this case, it's because she's, well, A, from another dimension, which we'll discuss if we ever do the season where they uh, change. No, she's still Holly. She's just uh, she's just changed her appearance yeah. to better resemble well, Hilly. Yeah, no, that's what I mean. Um, but the uh, the superior intellect that's gone off the rails a little bit mm. makes her separate from the others, <laughs> and the fact that she's in Inside, enclosed screen. in a computer screen exactly, yeah. and so can't um, be where they are all the time. Mm. Oh, but I did uh, very specifically say a hands-off den mother. So while Chitara yeah. is the den mother in Thundercats, mm. uh, Holly won't really get. 
to like soothing and dealing with other people's problems. Holly's well, very much a sort of I, that's Crichton's yeah. job. He does the hands-on stuff. Holly does the decision making. Yeah, Holly uh, is too negligent. Crichton is too uh, obsessive, too fussy, yeah. and fussy, <laughs> which makes her a great combination. I was living and working in the United States when Red Dwarf first aired, and it wasn't until 1993 or 1994, on a return to the UK, that. Switching channels one night, I came in the middle of this program, clearly a science fiction program, and at once, to my horror and outrage, what I thought I saw was a rip-off of Star Trek The Next Generation. I, I was already reaching for the telephone to call my lawyer when something happened that made me laugh, and it was something that certainly would not have happened on the next generation. Am I the only sane one here? Why don't we drop the defensive shields? A superlative suggestion, sir, with just two minor flaws. One, we don't have any defensive shields. <laughs> and two, we don't have any defensive shields. <laughs> now, I realize that technically speaking, that's only one flaw, but I thought it was such a big one, it was worth mentioning twice. <laughs> Good point, well made. So, I left the telephone where it was, and I went on watching, and... I think within a few moments, I, I had got what the show was, and, and I was laughing all the time. For me, what made it then and what continues to make the show so appealing is that it is at times so close to the television series that I recorded for seven years, and so delightfully makes a mock of the kind of show that I was doing. I sometimes wish that we could have introduced some of that same wild, ironic humour into the next generation. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, the, the boys uh, are interviewing Rimmer's replacement, uh, who at this point is a, a, f a female crew member who seems to be disgusted with them because all they want to do is watch videos and eat curry. That sounds like a really great yeah. way to pass that, the time. That's what most of us are <laughs> doing for quarantine. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know why I don't know what they have against curry, but I mean, I'm just going to say hologram, you're wrong. You're yeah. wrong, okay? <laughs> well, Americans in general dislike uh, Indian food. There's a weird stigma about it, and I'm just going to say it's because you haven't had the right Indian food. It is the best British dish. I'll say. We required immigrants to come to our country to give us decent food. That's how key the cultural melting pot is. You want to eat like a Saxon all year round? Oh, wait, sorry. The Saxons were also immigrants. And uh, Red Dwarf, uh, very specifically, Lister is a massive, massive fan of curries. But they kind of twin it up with like drunken curry eating. So mm. he'll drink a lot of beer and have curry. And, and it's just or, kind or of... The, or the, the triple fried egg chutney chili sandwich That's that he one, comes yeah. up with. And the drinking curry sort of chilled vindaloo sauce and having grated raw onions on his cornflakes. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's a way of Rimmer, who becomes sort of an audience surrogate at some points, to sort of look in disgust at Lister's ridiculously gross-seeming uh, eating habits. But really, it's just kind of the way certain students eat if if they just get a taste for particularly strong flavours. Yeah. And, and the way that, uh, that Lister gets a little bit of character development as the season continues, it becomes apparent that he is he's kind of got trapped in that student stage mm. 
I don't know if he ever actually went to university. I think did he, he go? He went to art college or something. He went to art college. Never went to class and then dropped out. Um, but he's he's not a stupid guy. Yeah. He could be much more than he is, but he's lazy. Which leads us to. <laughs> Okay, uh, so yeah, the, the, the end of Hollow Ship is that uh, Rimmer um, uh, walks out after uh, have, giving up the thing that he wants absolutely the most. And I think, it, you know, deep down, I've always wanted him to sort of be able to rediscover uh, Nirvana Crane. Like the romantic inside me uh, feels, feels like, you know, that would actually make Rimmer happy. Um, but I also wondered what the hell she saw in him and why she didn't see all of the bad things. But at the same time, if, if a woman could put up with all that shit and just say, okay, confront this about yourself in a gentle way, but uh, in a sort of a... I would say it may be in part because she's surrounded by egotistical douchebags. Who are all basically the same. And at least Rimmer is <clears throat> honest about his failings. I will also say by that... By comparison, he's kind of the most down-to-earth and grounded compared sure. to the rest of them. They just have their head in the clouds yeah. all the time. I will also say that Commander Natalina Pushkin in this gave me a weird fetish for Russian accents on ladies from that point <laughs> on. Oh, my God, that explains so much. <laughs> <laughs> and Xenia Onotop, who was Georgian, just compounded that. <laughs> it predicts the future with only a 5% error margin simply by extrapolating the most likely outcome of all known variables. I am asking it for your best chance of success. And here it is. Your best shot is crew member 4172. You have a 96% probability of failure. You keep giving me Russian-accented characters. I've given you one. Oh, no. One. Ever. And I can't bring her back yet. And she's deaf, which makes it really difficult to have a conversation. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So, number two, episode two, The Inquisitor. An android lives until the end of time. It realizes everything is pointless and then travels back through history, picking out individuals who have wasted their lives, forcing them to stand trial and justify their existence, erasing those who don't qualify from history and replacing them with a more worthwhile combination of sperm and spam and egg. The crew of Red Dwarf are in big trouble. This episode received a mixed reaction from viewers. It has been regarded as very sci-fi. And some people found the time travel ending of the episode confusing. What? <laughs> it's not confusing at all. They explain it in words of it's... one syllable. Yeah, I was about to say, they pretty much spell out the whole thing for you as if, you know, Rick Romoranis just turned directly to the camera and went, everybody got that? Everybody got that? Good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I think the actual, the specifics of the Inquisitor are handled by Crichton as sort of like he's telling an android myth. So we don't actually see this happening. We just see the Inquisitor turn up. And he's kind of a a, a fierce android humanoid version of the Predator. He's got that mask and the glove and the doot-doot-doot. And um, everything about him is sort of very intimidating. And he makes everyone stand trial and then flips up the mask and it's themselves. So this we get in, in one of the many philosophical episodes of Red Dwarf where they are confronted with who they are inside or who they fear they are inside. And I, I was always slightly baffled by this in that 
there is a previous episode called Justice where they all have to stand trial for and have the, they have their minds scanned and they're effectively held to account for the crimes they've committed by a penal system. And it's really similar to this. Mm. And somehow in this, Rimmer gets off scot-free in a way that doesn't make all that much sense. The cat gets off scot-free because he's so shallow that his argument is equally shallow. Yeah. And also, I would say, with regards to the cat, if the, if the timing of a person's life is always going to remain the same, then the only difference that the Inquisitor can really make is to switch the sperms out. Yeah. Um, and the cat would have been, you know, all of his sperms-in-law would have been extremely similar to he himself mm. because a lot of the flaws that the cat has are to do with his species, not yeah. him as an individual. But in justice, Rimmer incriminates himself uh, for a crime that he holds himself accountable for. But here, uh, his rationale is, with how I started out, I couldn't have been any better. But... You know he could because Ace Rimmer in another episode, Dimension Jump, illustrates that he could absolutely be a better version of Rimmer. And in fact, in season seven, he goes off to attempt to be a better version of Rimmer. And Red Dwarf was all the smaller for it. I think the only difference between the two is in Injustice is an independent process that scans his own perceivance of guilt. Whereas in this one, he's effectively just talking to himself. So I don't know if there's a part of it where, because he is he is judging his own self, his bravado slash misplaced confidence, that, you know, I, I think I'm great at times, maybe would have masked that more than the independent notion of the Justice episode. Yeah. I think as well the way the the inquisitor seems to work is that he he doesn't actually turn into the person he's judging whereas like you say Derek in justice it's the, it's the person's own sense of guilt that they pick up mm. on in this the inquisitor is using that person's own standards to assess whether or not they could have been more than they were. Now, while Rimmer has just had a relatively life-changing experience and could potentially change from here on in, what they're assessing him on is what has he done so far. And I think Rimmer's standards are so... They're not, I wouldn't even say they're low. They're mediocre. They're so, they're so bland. And yet he holds himself to, uh, we already mentioned, he, he, he gives himself the job of rear admiral mm-hmm. uh, when he talk, uh, sends letters to his mother and, and, and believes that he uh, should ascend the ranks yeah. on some level. But, but deep down, this is, this is part of the he issue. He also hates he himself. Yeah, he doesn't believe he could have been any better. Mm. Because he's programmed himself, well, not just programmed himself, but because he wasn't accepted by his parents, he wasn't accepted by the by his peers, he's had this sense of you are worthless reinforced over and over again. So in his mind, that's that's almost his own insecurities and and lack of self-esteem mm. saying, of course you could, you, you're scum, you're Arnold J. Rimmer, of course you could be almost, better. It's worse that he doesn't get found guilty yeah. here. It's, it's it, Because it's like he's given up. 
mm. at this stage. Absolutely. Because if he had still held himself to account that I could have been better than this, honestly, deep down I feel that, that suggests there's more there, which there is, and we know that to be true. The simpler answer, though, is there's three Rimmer episodes in well, this yes. six-episode season. <laughs> Indeed. But, <laughs> they but wanted to does, have a bit more Dave and Crichton. It does emphasise that Rimmer is basically the electrocuted dog that gives up and lies down. Yeah. You have been granted the greatest gift of all. The gift of life. Tell me, what have you done to deserve this superlative good fortune? Well, I, I say this with the highest respect, but what gives you the right to ask, no, actually demand that answer of me, your magnificence? <laughs> All must answer to the Inquisitor. But how do I know I'll get a fair hearing? Because, like all who stand before the Inquisitor, your judge shall be... Yourself! <laughs> oh, Smeg. Oh, Smeg indeed, matey. Everyone is judged by their own self? It's a bit metaphysical, I know, but it's the only fair way. Now then, justify yourself. Well, first, I... Liar! I've done good things. No, you haven't. In my heart, I've always tried to do good things. No, you didn't. Look, in my way, I've tried to lead a good life. When? <laughs> ah! What's that in the corner? It's the Archangel Gabriel. Well, that's me converted. I'm a new man. Hallelujah. This has some of the best Robert Llewellyn delivery in this, because uh, a... Alternate Lister gets created by the Inquisitor uh, and then gets blown to pieces uh, during the uh, uh, the chases that happen throughout Red Dwarf. And Lister, our Lister, keeps his hand to get him through the doors, at which leads to that, logically, sir, there's only one way you could have done that. <laughs> oh, sir, you've got it in your jacket! <laughs> I, th- I love that sequence so much. Relax. I'll beat you to death with the wet end. (laughs) One of the reasons that that is so hilarious is it's not that gross and it is actually fairly logical. Mm. I mean, I've said to you before, when we watch um, like suspense thrillers and and things like Mission Impossible and and, uh, Angels and Demons and stuff like that, you just know if something important has a retinal scan Mm -hmm. lock on it, somebody's eyeball is going on a pen. Well, you told you were reading a bit of Angels and Demons and you said, okay, so someone got through the eye lock in this uh, lockdown facility, but nobody was there. How did that happen? I went, well, it, they just did what Wesley Snipes did in Demolition Man, scooped somebody's eye out I and used on a pen. it exactly. on a pen. But, but it's, not, it's not really that grim, and especially when you see it, it's a fairly uh, bloodless model. Yeah. But Crichton is such a priss. He's not, but he, he has an overdeveloped sense of empathy, empathy for mm. humans, and he yes. never likes to think of any person getting harmed, which mm. is very endearing. Yes, it is, yeah. Also, like he's very c 3 p Great. And and prissy oh. like that. So like you said. Oh yeah, but he's also such a great physical actor that mm. he just throws himself into all of these performances, <laughs> and he is just on just in top form in this episode. It's so funny the way he just throws himself physically into this role. Mm. Oh dear me. I do also like the philosophical tone that Crichton takes on when he himself comes to be judged. Well, Crichton, justify yourself. I'm not sure I can. 
But surely your life is replete with good works. There can be few individuals who have lived a more selfless life. But I am programmed to live unselfishly. And therefore, any good works I do come not out of fine motives, but as a result of a series of binary commands I am compelled to obey. Well, then how can any mechanical justify himself? Perhaps only if he attempted to break his programming and conduct his life according to a set of values he arrived at independently. Your argument invites deletion. That's the end of the clip, but it goes on. The rules are yours, not mine. Do you wish to be erased? I am programmed not to wish for anything. I serve. In a human, this type of behavior could be considered stubborn. But I am not human, and neither are you. And it is not our place to judge them. I wonder why you do. And it's like, no, 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 expand on that. Don't go on to the comedy. Like, have the Inquisitor... Like, this should have ended with the Inquisitor really thinking about himself more. It yeah, ends like his on a, own motivations for yeah. why he keeps judging people like this. It ends on... I, I can see why people got confused because it kind of doesn't end on that... Like, a, a Next Generation, a good episode of The Next Generation would probably have the, the Inquisitor really, like, going, oh, actually thinking about it. It's considered that if I was better than I am now, I wouldn't be doing this. Yeah, I will change my ways at the end of all of this. Yeah. But it wasn't really probably going to fit in... Yeah, because Picard would say, but, you know, rather than um, erasing what everyone has done from time, uh, if it, isn't it better to simply point them, you know, in, in the right direction and then let them change their ways if they're able or something along those lines? Mm-hmm. Enough to make him uh, figure out that there is, an, uh, you know, a respect for human life or something. Or how about somebody pointing out to him that if you go around changing various individuals to be different individuals, that's yeah. going to have a knock-on effect. The ripple that effect. Could, oh, my God. You could create billions of unworthy people mm-hmm. because of the ones that you've changed. Which means you're always going to be leaping from life to life, erasing morons. Striving to push <laughs> wrong what once went wrong. No. I, I would almost want to hear the dialogue of him like questioning himself and getting and, and realizing coming to that realization just mm. because his his dialogue is so grimdark it sounds like it should be from a 40k novel. Oh yeah. Totally. <laughs> I love the, um, the the set dressing and design on on uh, season five in particular. Like a lot of stuff seems to take place in factories with a lot of smoke in them, <laughs> and uh, it kind of reminds me of uh, like obviously this whole series, uh, this whole um, show is inspired very much by Alien and Aliens. But Alien Three was made around about this time, and there's times when it feels like they've just sort of walked sideways from the Alien Three set and uh, gone to the slightly cheaper sections <laughs> to film bits for Red Dwarf. It's, um, this was my formative education in sci-fi. Yeah, I, I will also say that the section where, at the start, where they are kind of talking to themselves, mm-hmm. I just love that whole section, mostly because of the way that Lester became so just incredibly blasé. <laughs> It's like, uh, Spin on it. Yeah, exactly. You just opened up and said, let's make you got yourself into now, lad. It's like, I, that's... Because that is how I, I've always viewed Lister as a kind of... He is the basic everyman of the group. It's mm. just, well, stuff happens. I'm just going to eat and watch and drink. <laughs> and then that's me. And whatever. I'll figure it out from there. Um, but the whole part where each of them we're just talking back to each other. I found that whole section just really funny because it was written in a way that, it, as weird as it seems, it was all entirely believable as that's exactly what you would say to each other, mm. which sounds really simple, 
but it's probably incredibly difficult to actually write because it's it's not a natural thing to talk to yourself. That makes sense. Well, yeah, but it's it not, also it's not was... a straightforward thing to do. But that had me in that I was laughing all over the place in that particular section. It represents interior monologue and, uh, you know, having your own misgivings and self-doubts. So when Rimmer says, liar, to himself, it, it feels like he could be having that conversation on a regular basis. Yeah. I mean, the cat talking to the cat is just exactly the sort of situation you go, oh, no, I'm brilliant. Oh, yes, I am. Oh, yeah, no, great. And that's it. It's brilliant. I've given pleasure to the world because I have such a beautiful ass. Well, that's true. Can I go now? That's your case? You need more? Some might say that's a pretty shallow argument. Some might say I'm a pretty shallow guy, but a shallow guy with a great ass. Sometimes you astonish even me. Thank you. It's kind of like when he talks to himself in the mirror and he's like, oh, who's that good? Who's that gorgeous person? It's me! There are a lot of episodes and a lot of instances of uh, the crew of Red Dwarf coming up against or be or thinking about other versions of themselves that are better and at doing their job mm. than they are. It's this like there's about a dozen or that are significantly uh, different from them in some way. Yeah, it speaks to our own internal anxieties of like I could be a better version of me, and they keep meeting the better versions of themselves. The worse version. And yeah, occasionally they meet. Much, oh, that coming up in a bit, but yeah, which itself makes them question about how rotten they might actually be inside, or it should. A lot of the time, it's just used for laughs, but it might make us question it. It's. I mean, if, if nothing else, these um, clothes horse uh, actors uh, work supremely well for putting in new outfits and having them act in slightly different but exaggerated to ways to illustrate, like, uh, you know, clear cartoonish versions of themselves that are, um, you know, very much like evil or smarter or, or slicker uh, and... Um, it just it's a recurring trope throughout the series honestly not to get like mega philosophical about it because Mm -hmm. this is neither the time nor the place um but i think there's an element of the comparison between the isolation of being in infinite space Mm -hmm. in infinite time because the theory is they've gone so far forward in time so much time has passed while Lister was in stasis that the universe has effectively run its course yeah the year would be 3 million 2,220 all of these these beings that they keep coming up against are they're not aliens but they are from different points in history that Lister has passed Mm. whilst asleep and it's almost like there's a, a constant comparison going on between that huge outer space isolation and the inner space isolation that everybody carries with them. Like that, Robinson Crusoe. Exactly. That ultimately everybody is alone in the universe because you're alone in your own head. And the only things that you can really uh, interact with in your own head are reflections and alternate versions of yourself. I think it'd be fair to say, considering how much space they actually cover from the beginning of season one till at least the end of season eight that we've that I've seen, that for all the blackness they've crossed through and for all the closeness they've actually made to Earth, the internal journey is significantly greater. Mm, yeah. 
Wow. Did not expect that level of profundity after just an hour. <laughs> oh my god, and also, if they are, if the point is that they are trying to home beacon it back to Earth, mm-hmm. because the universe is still expanding as a result of the Big Bang, if they're travelling as slowly as they appear to be, it doesn't matter how far they travel, they will never get any closer to Earth. Yeah, they're not going to get there. Mm-hmm. Okay, so before we give in to existential despair, um, we'll save that for episode six. Uh, Terraform. On a psi moon, the world is reshaped to conform to the mental makeup of one Arnold Judas Rimmer. His anxieties gain physical form and present a danger to the rest of the crew. Among fans, this was considered as one of the weakest episodes of the series. Who's taking these opinion polls? What? <laughs> That's what I want to know. This is one of the best! Okay. This is awesome! <laughs> what? These people have terrible taste. Uh, are we just going to get to episode six? And it'll be like, oh no, that was good. Oh, that, that I was spoil good. nothing. <laughs> like, not for nothing. This is a really cool, like, in just in terms of the concept of a, a psychic planet that can conform to whatever mindset of whatever person it encounters. Like, that's an awesome idea. Absolutely. Just in and of itself. Mm. And it starts in a really cool way as well. It's, it starts one of, the, it's one of those sort of cold opens where the shuttle has crashed on the moon. Crichton has been crushed and his mechanoid eye is coming out and he can't move his legs and it's he's being told by his onboard computer he's losing power and he's he only has a few uh, minutes of life left mm. and it's got robocop vision it's got robocop vision and you sort of feel oh shit Crichton's really hurt but he's doing everything in a very calm way that you know that a human wouldn't really be able to unless they were able to switch off that panic element of the area. And, the co- and again, the comic timing in Robert Llewellyn's <coughs> delivery for this sequence is <laughs> genius. And it's is so good. The first instance of Crichton saying something twice to make it funny, and really all he has to do is say it twice, and it's automatically oh, hilarious. Mean, one, yeah. we don't have any defensive shields, and two, we yeah. don't have any we defensive don't have shields. Any defensive shields. Also, <laughs> two tiny drawbacks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but and of course, he would be very systematic about this situation and say, okay, I've got enough power to detach my hand and take one of my cybernetic eyes and stick it on one of the fingers and make like a little robotic, you know, uh, a drone almost that can just move about on its own. Mm. And that will be what I use to get out of the situation. Like that is something that a, a cyborg like him would think of to do to get out of this mess. And they very... went to the funniest scene in the whole episode. I was just about oh to say God. this. <laughs> this um, is. I honestly don't think I've actually seen this comedy scenario anywhere else. Like, as in terms of like how they're getting the comedy. Like they set up very quickly and briefly as this hand with an eye on it has gotten up to Red Dwarf that List is terrified of spiders, which makes a bit in Demons and Angels absolutely crucifying. What um, I'm saying is, this might not be your night. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he becomes paralysed with fear as Crichton's hand starts to crawl up him. He thinks it's a tarantula. And he starts, because he can't say it, he types this out to the cat who comes in to say hi, and then the cat also becomes paralysed with fear 
and types out with him. So it's a text conversation between the two of us, which are, between the two of them, which unfortunately I can't play back for you because it's just it's the sound visual. of a computer yeah. and yeah, the audience laughing. Visual. But this is it's so good. This is one of those multi-level gags that we repeatedly praise The Simpsons for being capable of because Bingo, yeah. the the humor in this comes from the fact that it it's a reference to text-based video games. Yes, yes, he even mentions them, Cat does. Yeah. Oh, you're playing an adventure game. Mm. <laughs> um, I am not playing a game. This is serious. This yeah. is real. Like he gives <laughs> and all you have is what they're typing on the screen and then their reactions to it, their Absolutely. facial expressions. So their the, the timing of the comedy. I'm scared. You're scared. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you haven't seen it. Um, it's got the, an eye the size of a meatball. The timing of this <laughs> is is it goes down to how fast your audience can read, and the mm. the obviously the cursor key has a little bit of control over it. Mm-hmm. But for me personally, where like I take things that are written in much faster and more easily than things that are being spoken. This was fantastic. It was like comedy book. I've just realised the only thing that it feels related to searching. The movie yes. with John Charles. Oh god. Where yes. um text on screen and the movement of a cursor become yeah. expressions of a person's Absolutely, uh, yeah. internal language. Yeah. So you've got that. You've then got the physical comedy of Danny John Jules and Craig Charles both being frozen apart from their hands. <laughs> both mm-hmm. of which I might add are typing way faster one-handed than anybody is really capable of doing, especially when they're in paralyzed remarkably Paris. elegantly yeah. as well yeah incredibly <laughs> elegantly most of the spelling and grammar is spot on apart from tarantula um, tarantula tar- exactly yeah. um, to, to hold in a shift key and press the key at the same time to capitalize it yeah that's awesome. impressive that is impressive but yeah so there's there's like these layers just kept getting built and built and built and built and built and then you've got the the baseline funny thing which is he's got a spider in his pants <laughs> And then, like which this, turns all... out that it's actually Crichton's hand, which is even, yeah. <laughs> which could and considerably be worse, if, the, depending the... on how you want to think about exactly. it. Exactly. And in the course of all of this, they have effortlessly then managed to set up how Crichton is going to, or Crichton's uh, little pal is going to communicate with them because up to yeah. that point it's like well how on earth was he going to tell them because he can't speak? What is it, like, Lassie? Woof. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I love the bit where. As part of it, just said, I think it's building a nest down there. <laughs> so this leads them back to uh, the uh, the Simon, and Rimmer is being oiled up. Now, if you listen to the commentary, they make a huge deal about all the oil that uh, uh, Chris Barry is being slathered in by these two maidens. And then this disgusting, rancid, green, xenomorph alien beast turns up. And you never see it in its entirety, which means that they can just build several puppets for its hands, its legs, and its tail. And it's always a lot scarier for not having been seen. What is what is the beast a representation of Rimmer's? Neurosis or it's, it's self-loathing? A, it's a kind of... It's a representation of all of his... His self-loathing. Yeah, yeah self-loathing. Because, because they, have, they have ended up in a swamp of his own despair. Yeah. 
is the is the whole premise is that they're stuck in the swamp of despair and and naturally his psyche would come up with something like this naturally but then the beast is sort of the culmination of all of his self-loathing all of his doubt and all of his uh all of the things that he doesn't like about himself basically mm. positive traits are seen as gravestones <laughs> and the mm-hmm. time and the dates that he passed away effectively which is both quite sad but also quite funny <laughs> it's a weird weird kind of way of doing it but it worked it's super sad but also like just an and hilarious but also a depressing way to think about aging yeah <laughs> like, and mm. especially as the uh the the charm uh gravestone is tiny load charisma and just his little finger flashes yeah. but the, i think the point of that and it that is really sad the implication is that he if he had any charm um it, it basically died at birth mm. he'd, he'd never experienced it with any yeah. other people oh god he never possessed any mm. to begin with which mm. yeah that's a kind of that's a bit bleak but bear in mind this is not an accurate reading on Arnold Rimmer. This is Arnold Rimmer as seen through his own neurosis. Yes. This is Arnold Rimmer hating himself. And uh, honestly, this whole thing could have gotten... To, like they, they do go in the right direction. I would make it bigger because I'm me. But um, they, they to, to get out of this, they have to fight a bunch of off-world Jawas from the second episode of The Mandalorian. <laughs> Back when they made these, they had red eyes. And it was like, see, they're not Jawas because Jawas have yellow eyes. But now Jawas also have red eyes. <laughs> and uh, that requires them to resurrect the, uh, the, the specters of his uh, self-worth which uh, fight like cavaliers to, um, uh, to, to, to battle these negative traits. Yeah, his self-esteem. And they have, yeah, and they have to be nice to him and yeah. give him compliments and try to boost his sense of self in order to get these better parts of himself going, which is a great idea. That's a great concept as well. And I feel like yeah. it's let down by the last word, which is, uh, you know, Rimmer says, did you mean all that? As in, they, they said nice things about him, and he, they all just go, no. And it's like, ha ha, Rimmer fucking sucks, and they hate him. And it's like, we've made no progress at all. <laughs> <laughs> the thing I wrote down was that they were, they were saving the day by combating toxic masculinity. Mm. <laughs> like, yeah. they were there and trying to be like, it's okay, we love you. And like they even, like, got, like, a big group hug in. Yeah, they and, did the big group hug. It's so adorable. And then they completely undermine it at the end of the episode. And you're like, oh, okay. It's... Uh, it's it's very this whole thing this whole series is uh, like written by a clever 12 year old boy like the whole of red dwarf it has that level of sexuality it has that level of um understanding of the rest of the world it's quite clever and philosophical but only to a point uh, it doesn't have that kind of like we're really going to hit you in the emotions for this and and whenever they did the audience didn't like it. <laughs> so um, it appear. They, I think this is one of the reasons why I really like the novels, actually, because yeah. they do have the, the space and capacity to go that bit further with it. Yeah. It's like when um, uh, later on they uh, get, uh, get told about the planet of the nymphomaniacs, and even though it's only figurative, uh, a planet of women who engage in fornication compulsively and without joy is not actually all that appealing to people who've been in a loving relationship it's uh, it's like oh god that actually sounds like a fucking nightmare unless all you want is glassy-eyed thrusting 
but again, like this is it's it was written for people of exactly my age and exactly my kind of you know head makeup at the time. It's just really quite great that it still appeals now and you know ultimately i could have left this far behind like a lot of other stuff like you mentioned faulty towers Stop it! i'm trying to cheer her up you stupid kraut <laughs> the germans episode of faulty towers now is fucking creepy oh yeah <laughs> And I do not have aged well. Yeah, I, I do have a, a, a very like the, the the comedy of Fawlty Towers. Like certain episodes are just fan bloody tastic, but the, the the element of British comedy that's like let's make fun of foreigners and and uh, I'm yeah, can't, I can't any, even start saying the, the slurs. Yeah, anyone here, but, that's not from here, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, which. I mean, you could argue there's an element of that in American humor as well. So it, let's not just dump all over. Like, it's it's certainly not mm. exclusive to you guys. So. Yeah. So, yeah, I suppose, like, All in the Family now was uh, your equivalent of our, um, uh, uh. was it uh, Till Death Do Us Part? Um, the Alf Garnet, Alf Garnet season. Yeah. Uh, the first one was called In Sickness and In Health, yeah. and then his wife died, and the second was uh, Death okay. to But it is a literal, like, uh, 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 American adaptation of a British concept there. Mm. So the whole, you know, old man who says racist things isn't that funny becomes less so over time. And mm. honestly, Red Dwarf has just about held up. If you go back and look at a couple of episodes that ended up not being made, they sound a bit sexist, and it's like... They actually were switched on enough to go, this isn't really going to work, is it? Mm-hmm. Which is good. Yeah, they kept it very contained to mm. the main cast of characters, which, you know, there's elements of a lot of those things in those characters, but they always seem to have a counter to it. Like mm. if Rimmer says something really terrible, Lister and possibly also Kat and Crichton are there to say, no, Rimmer, you're wrong. Mm. You're just wrong. The holographic crew member who regards them with distaste, the show is on side with her. She, the, the show is like, yeah, these are grotty boys. It's mm. it's never really particularly disparaging to women. No, although that line about, so you don't have any interest in horse riding or ballet. It's is a twelve. It's a smartish twelve-year-old boy who that, isn't yes. trying to be derogatory, but as far as he's concerned, women uh, like perfume and horses and books, and uh, he doesn't know all that much about it. But uh, yeah. they can go over there and do that thing. It's not really a he-man woman haters club so much no. as a we have lots we to have learn about women. No idea. <laughs> if we could meet <laughs> some, that would be nice. That would be great. Yeah. Again, twelve-year-old boy. <laughs> I, I do want to kind of call out Chris Barry's acting a little bit in this one as well. Oh, yeah? Because, because I he effectively, in this episode, has to go through a whole process of being like, I'm really good, I'm really bad, I'm really good, they like me, they don't like me, hmm. this is why they don't like me. He There's a range in this one that most of the time he just is told that he's an oik, or he's a git, and then that's it. But this one, there's a whole section where he has to be go from a huge amount of depth at the end where they initially all say, these are all the bad things that you do, to then going all the way back up where they're complimenting him to escape, mm. only to then have to nail the landing a little bit where he says, you didn't mean that, did you? And they'll go, no. Yeah. And I, I think that takes a fair amount of chops to be able to actually do that, to be able to be the person that is 
having to do that little roller coaster. Yeah, because his uh, immediate response, rather than going, I'll just go out there and let this thing eat me, uh, you know, to save you guys, if he had actually said that, uh, then that would have meant his self-esteem would spring to life and do the fighting for him. Mm. And I was like, there's actually aspects of this episode which they could have really played with. And Rimmer actually finding something in himself all the same. Mm. I also thought that they could have played it differently if they'd attempted to tell him nice things about himself and he'd been so full of self-loathing, he'd be like, you're just having me on at this point. I don't want to know. And then they'd gone away and regrouped and come back and said, listen, we have to actually now tell the truth. And rather than just complimenting Rimmer, just trying to say nice things about each other and eventually ending up hitting on something which is actually true. And then at the end, the same ending kind of happens and his self-esteem kind of saves the day. And then Rimmer says, you you didn't mean any of that, did you? And then Lister goes, nah, and walks away. But it's the other side of that. And it's like, no, actually thinking about it that had to come from somewhere real they're just telling Rimmer I hate you you're a twat but really they have kind of grown used to his peccadillos over the years and do value certain things about him that would have been kind of a heartwarming Futurama episode which is why Futurama is the evolution of Red Dwarf to me the bit where the all because they're going to have a little conflab in the in the front cockpit mm. I did laugh at the bit where the they just they know they figure out what to do. They need to compliment him and make him feel good about himself. And then they all just kind of had this weird grin. All <laughs> put all their heads <laughs> at the same time with a weird grin of just like, Hiya How you doing? Hi, buddy. Sort of thing. <laughs> there is a little bit of an element of truth though where he's like, Well, you guys are always you're always ripping on me and you're always making fun. They're like, oh, well, that's what guys do. You know, that's what the lads do. All Mm. our our friends, like, there is kind of an element of truth in that guy friends will often do things like that to show affection because (laughs) when they show genuine affection, it's, it usually makes them feel a little uncomfortable. So the other, the more acceptable, the more comfortable way to do that is to, you know, is to kind of rip on your best mate and and kind of take the piss out of him a little bit yeah and there's also the class structure element to it as well in that Rimmer is technically Lister's boss and so Mm. it will be his habit to rip on his boss to make himself feel better about the fact that he is an underling Mm. Crichton will follow his lead albeit that he covers it up all the time um, because he's a mechanoid and he's supposed to be respectful of humans even if they are dead. He's not just following um, his lead. Rimmer is shitty to Crichton Well, yes. <laughs> okay, so that is entirely justified. That's true. And the cat and- takes the piss out of everybody. And fulfilling all Space Corps dietary requirements, dinner tonight, gentlemen, will consist of sprout soup, followed by sprout salad, and for dessert, I think you'll like it, rather unusual, sprout crumble. <laughs> You know damn well sprouts make me chuck. Well, this is awful. I've got you down for sprouts almost every meal. I tell a lie. It is every meal. Episode 4. Quarantine. While searching a derelict spacecraft, the crew encounter a holographic virus, which makes Rimmer go absolutely do-lally. Unfortunately, they only find out the extent of this after being confined to barracks for several days, where they are at the mercy of Rimmer and his new hand puppet, a penguin named Mr. Flibble. (laughs) This episode was considered as one of the better ones. 
Viewers particularly enjoyed Rimmer's descent into insanity, the character of Flibble becoming a fan favourite. The episode has... Which, by that tells you all you need to know about Red Dwarf. Like, they, they don't like uh, the, uh, the the pathos at the end of Hollow Ship, but they do like glove puppets. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, they are hilarious glove puppets. They are. And I, yes. I love Mr. Flibble too. The episode has been described as one which epitomises the blend of sci-fi and comedy that made the show such a hit. Now, one of the other aspects of this is that uh, Crichton comes across the idea of a positive virus. So rather than uh, the flu where you wake up feeling like absolute shit, you wake up feeling good. And uh, he finds, was it Felix Felicis? Or am I confusing it with Liquid Luck from Harry Potter? They literally refer to it as Liquid Luck at one point. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so Joe Rowling was clearly a fan of this one episode because she was like, right, luck potion, got it, fine. Have that. First off, a confusing element of this is that um, Dr. Hildegard Landstrom, the uh, hologram who's dying of the holovirus, froze herself, question mark? She's a hologram! <laughs> she comes out covered in ice! Well, well I mean, something, something science fiction. Yeah. That's what she thinks. They wanted her to look scary. She did. Things don't have to make sense. Mm. She she does look terrifying in this episode. Oh my god, uh, she is legitimately creepy. It's Maggie Steed as Dr. Landstrom. What's dead and dead and dead all over? Give in, Dr. Fruit Loop, do tell me. I want to go on the record to say that this is my favorite episode of the entire series overall. Whoa. Like, this is the one that I go back to over and over again. I can almost quote it verbatim. It is extremely relevant to what's going on right now, mm-hmm. but I absolutely adore this episode. Yeah, when I told my husband which season we were watching and that we'd have to sit down and shotgun the whole show, he was like, oh, that's the one with quarantine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> One of the reasons that it's uh, so appealing is effectively they're by Lister's own words they are forced to endure. Is it three months of quarantine? Yes. Yep. Um, yeah. And uh, Lister says we're in each other's faces in confined conditions all the time. We should be able to get through this. And three days later, they really can't get through this. They are at each other's throats. And Rimmer, uh, who was not showing signs of uh, having contracted this virus and is not crazy yet. Uh, has gone out of his way to drive them to distraction by only giving them things that they would hate. Basically, Rimmer has become fed up with Crichton uh, constantly citing the Space Corps directive. That's another Mm. big element of this, is that he's trying to play it by the book, and then the boys, in turn, try to play it by the book back at him. So he's sort of using the rules of the Space Corps directive against them by saying, you only get one birth because Lister's the only registered crew member. I've supplied you with the absolute bare minimum of what the Space Corps directive says that I need to provide you with in this quarantine space. So, yeah, they're doing pretty much everything by the book, and that's kind of one of the overriding uh, uh, frameworks for this whole episode. This stems- I love a bit when he starts to get really officious about that, when he's when he's like, oh, well, you gave me this book, and so now I'm going to throw it in your face. And he cuts out, and Crichton tries to call him a smeghead. This also stems from the fact that uh, to recover Landstrom, a brilliant scientist who might be able to help them, uh, Crichton says, we, well, uh, um, uh, Rimmer says that red, this vessel 
Gentlemen, the crimson short one up there can only sustain one hologram. Or had you forgotten? <laughs> you hadn't forgotten. You hadn't forgotten. Uh, Crichton says, you go back to Red Dwarf, we'll try and recover Landstrom. And then Rimmer, like, queries him and says, but if you bring Landstrom back, then like any other member of the 168 dead crew members, apart from me, 167, uh, then he'd have to effectively timeshare his time on Red Dwarf and he's aware of the fact that given the choice they wouldn't they would switch him off and then leave him off so he gets both affronted because he feels that they don't like him offended at the fact that he feels like a second class citizen in that he is a hologram not a human and almost that he's been relegated to service to serve David which also drives him fucking nuts throughout the whole series well the whole reason he's there is so that um Lister wouldn't go insane. Yeah, so he like yeah. he, he feels you know Rimmer always feels what about me, uh, but he also feels like you know existentially paranoid. Like I might die at any minute here. Like they might switch me off, and then that's it for Arnold Rimmer. So there's a lot going on with Rimmer behind closed doors here. I, I like though that they earlier in the season they kind of show that it might not be as easy to replace Rimmer as they hope it would be. Mm-hmm. Like because they were trying to interview replacements and they kept getting told no. So it's like. <laughs> The subtext being there that every single dead crew member that they interview would prefer Oblivion to spending all of their time with these bozos. Maybe he doesn't need to worry so much. Exactly. Ah, But he doesn't know that, and it's better that they let him live in that fear so that he maybe doesn't unleash his full rim. I think the other aspect of this episode is that he feels like his authority is constantly being undermined, which is why he starts using the Space Corps directive as a way to get back on top and be the the ultimate authority over all of them. They took that aspect and threaded it throughout season six. They're basically on an ongoing quest in that one to find Red Dwarf. And Rimmer is trying to be captain in that one more than any other. And Crichton consistently undermines him not in a spiteful or or, um, passive aggressive way but just kind of reminding him that all the space core directives he's pulling out of thin air attached to something like you know you uh, no officer should attend uh, um, a meeting entirely bollock naked or something like that yeah i think that it it was interesting to me that i think this episode they kind of initially introduced it and then they went actually we can get a lot of mileage out of this if we pepper it in yeah. not, not as a major thing but just every now and then just keep peppering it in and actually those are some of the best parts of season 6 as well oh, is right. where they just go oh, oh is it Norwegian people cannot park in the first three levels of the car park <laughs> <laughs> that's a, a, a fine law sir but I'm just not sure what it apply, where it applies here mm-hmm. um but season six is really strong as well. It's it's I'd say it's uh, on on a par with uh, uh, five and has some like makes some real ground and uh, you know emotionally speaking. The quarantine things begin to break down and it seems like um, they've been physically fighting. Lister's got a black eye now. I assume that can only have been given to him by the cat or Crichton would be in a peak of guilt. Mm. But from the look sounds of it, when they get into fights, Crichton harms himself mm. rather he than hurting the uh, humanoids. unendingly passive-aggressive. Yeah. Crichton is not... Ca- because he's not capable of visiting aggression on people, he does it through a really roundabout means, which can sometimes, as you say, involve hurting himself. Mm. It doesn't do harm to humans. Mm. 
he doesn't directly do anything that will cause him harm. But he has no problem effectively undermining them in a way that is also not insulting them. <laughs> and that's it's, it's probably a credit to the writing more than anything else that in some ways you can always feel that he goes, I have to be in service of you, but also I hold you all in massive amounts of contempt. Absolutely. <laughs> and he can make cutting observations that are not in and of themselves critical. It's just the way he phrases it. Yeah, I mean, the way he mode. describes it is so good. Like, the part that always gets me in this episode, because I, I love it when Crichton gets angry at any point. It's hmm. so funny. But then, because it feels so much like he's breaking character, but also, like, there's this stuff that's just been bubbling up under the surface, and <laughs> finally it gets to come out. And the way it comes out is so over-the-top and creative. And the absolute peak of this episode for me is when he describes the way Lister blows his nose. If you still want to be alive when there's only 78 more days to go, I suggest you do not blow your nose. (laughs) Do you mind if I ask why? Well, let's forego the noise and the revolting burbling sound and go straight to the really gross part when you always, and I mean always, having blown your nose, have to open up the handkerchief... And take a look at the contents. I mean, why? What do you expect to see in there? A Turner seascape, perhaps. The face of the Madonna. An undiscovered Shakespearean sonnet. I mean, why? This is something that I go back to all the time. What do you expect to find it? It's so good. Do you know what that really reminds me of, though, is Eddie Izzard. Yes. Mm-hmm. Is that a piece of money or is that the treasure, <laughs> treasure of, of the Sierra, Sierra Madre? Madre? Oh, it's a bit of grit. <laughs> uh, but My husband likes the um, W-O-O. He will use that line all the time. Without oxygen. With, okay, with so... Without I'll oxygen. teach you to be bread baskets. <laughs> when Rimmer finally makes his appearance, gentlemen, he's in, oh in this blacked-out window. And apparently, according to the commentary, this was a really tough series of scenes to film. It had the three of them just standing in the room, just not particularly, like, not much going on for them. They weren't finding it funny. But for me, watching it, it's one of the funniest fucking backs and oh forths ever. This weird stilted kind of and is just playing the whole thing totally straight and like Hannibal Lecter yeah was this the year old as if he is using his own insanity as a way to test them yeah if they're insane it's so good it's like and I love the fact that this is the whole thing that gets him infected in the first place is the fact that Rimmer insisted on fucking with the rest of the crew Mm. is what ended up having him be contracted with this virus because Landstrom ends up getting on the intercom with him and he contracts it auditorily. He contracts it by hearing um, Landstrom talk to him at some point. Mm. And then that whole idea of him having just, he can't stop messing with his teammates just carries through all the way to the end of the episode. This is insane. We've been here five days. There's no sign of any virus. We're clean. That's it. Five days. We've got him. Space Corps Directive 699. We can demand a rescreening. He'll refuse. He can't. He's playing it by the book. We've nailed him. Gentlemen, your conversation makes interesting listening. Rimmer, is that you? Oh, yes. How long have you been listening? Two, maybe three hours. Well, no one's got any disease, man. We're clean. 
You have to rescreen us, sir, as per Directive 699. No one's got any virus and no one's smegging nuts. Well, that's good. <laughs> Is something amiss? Amiss? God, no. What could possibly be amiss? You don't think there's anything amiss? I'm sitting here wearing a red and white checked gingham dress and army boots. You think that's unamiss? No, of course not. It's just we thought you'd gone nuts. We were trying to heal you. I was just doing a little test. A little test to see if you'd gone crazy. <laughs> if there's one thing I can't stand, it's crazy people. Well, we've passed the test. Remember, you can let us out. I can't let you out. Why not? Because the king of the potato people won't let me. I've begged him. I've got down on my knees and wept. He wants to keep you here. Keep you here for ten years. Could we see him? See who? The king. Do you have a magic carpet? Yeah. A little three-seater. So let me get this straight. You want to fly on a magic carpet to see the king of the potato people? and plead with him for your freedom. And you're telling me you're completely sane? I think that warrants two hours of W-O-O. -O. What's W-O-O? That's where's. Without oxygen. No oxygen for two hours. That'll teach you to be bread baskets. What do we do? I think I only hope's the potato king. <laughs> the scene it devolves into this hex vision penguin glove puppet called Mr. Flibble that he brings out, which is exactly like it is. There's no explanation required around it. He's like a Looney Tunes version of crazy. But again, I think the whole thing gets pulled off because Chris Barry refuses to um, go Daffy Duck. He's like doing it totally serious the whole time. There's something about the way he delivers his lines. It's it's really hard to put a finger on, but there's a there's a a kind of fixedness about his jaw and his mouth that suggests he had to hold it like that mm. to stop himself mm -hmm. from laughing. <laughs> He this also is... almost never blinks in the scene, so his eyes are just kind of locked focus on them the whole mm. time. It's it's funny in a very creepy way. Mm. Also, this uh, uh, whole episode is an example of the the whole uh, philosophical hell is other people scenario, mm. which is, again, like, this is a macrocosm of Red Dwarf in that they're trapped together, and if it was just Dave on his own, he could probably just get by ignoring the uh, crochet magazine and uh well actually like he got quite into the whole crocheting side of things was it the wallpaper what's on the video Book of the, the oh, stippling a... yeah wallpaper, wallpaper stippling samples. and <laughs> painting techniques <laughs> i bet your quarantine at home is sounding less bad I, now folks I, I told you what would happen i warned you didn't i warn you what he's would putting happen? it on I, i'm putting it on he's not gonna put it on <laughs> there he goes <laughs> i think oh. as well this is this very much typifies what I kind of class as the whole British absurdist humour mm. phase mm. where there was something about just anything goes. And I never, a lot of the other comedy I saw was very much like sitcom 
yes, they may get in a bit of a weird situation, but it's still very much grounded in a relatively standard through line. Whereas Red Dwarf for me, and it may be just because this is when I first saw it, but it was the first time I was seeing things that I just went, that's just that's just all over the place in terms of where it's going with stuff. It's it's not the sort of comedy that you would normally see on the TV. And I think that, that worked in its favour because all of what you were seeing here is just like, this is crazy, dribble and potato people. <laughs> you just would never see this normally in a comedy show because most of the time you, people would look at it and go, why is this funny? It doesn't make any sense. It's just confusing but if you got it you got it but this is where i think it overlaps a lot with something like hitchhikers because it's it's Mm. almost like a radio comedy Mm. in that it Mm. utilizes the audience's own imagination against them you get some of the most hilarious bits in red dwarf you don't see the thing that is funny they don't even necessarily it's it's not like buzzing funny one-liners or anything like that it's that they describe something that you the audience then create your own version of and it's hilarious what are they doing they're just lining up in some kind of firing squad whoa whoa hang on hang on someone's being brought out they're tying them to a stake it's winnie the pooh What? Winnie the Pooh, I swear. He's refusing the blindfold. <laughs> They're tying Winnie the Pooh to the stake. <laughs> That's something no one should ever have to see. Side note. I uh, recorded off the telly, hollow ship and quarantine, and then using my uh, tape recorder, recorded into an audio tape mm. both these episodes and listened to them back to back on my Walkman. So that's probably why I've committed them to memory. Mm. Yeah. And they're two of my absolute favourites. And then the, the whole uh, episode culminates in this series of, of uh, moments of good fortune as this luck virus that's just been sitting there for three days and no one figured out that they could use it to get out. Um, or uh, any of the, the positive viruses, because they find a whole case full of them. Yeah. I think Crichton takes one helping of the uh, luck virus. And it's like, you, you don't want to take all of that? You're just going to leave it on this derelict planet when you already... Like, who are you leaving it for? This is maybe the best episode you could probably give to someone, especially right now, to say, this is Red Dwarf, you'll like it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the writing is so incredibly tight in this episode, and the performances are just, like, like you often say, firing from all cylinders. Mm-hmm. For what it's worth, Red Dwarf is currently available, at least on UK, Netflix, for the first eight seasons, the ones that were originally screened on the BBC. <laughs> Mr. Flibble's very cross. You shouldn't have run away from him. What are we going to do with them, Mr. Flibble? We can't possibly do that. Who'd clear up the mess? Okay, number five, Demons and Angels. After a science experiment backfires, Red Dwarf is destroyed 
and replaced with two duplicates of itself, one of them with all the best aspects of the ship and its crew, the other with all the worst. This episode received a mixed response from viewers. <laughs> Hang on. Is that just what it says for all of them? Is that it just had a mixed response? Fans have pointed to a noticeable continuity error when Lister refers to events from the Series 4 episode White Hole, even though he should have no memory of them. Right. May I interject? Fans have used the Inquisitor to explain how Kachansky changes from Claire Grogan over the first six seasons into Chloe Annette in Series 7. So if fans can use other episodes to explain why and how Lister did and didn't marry Kachansky and did and didn't have two twin sons, Jim and Bexley, and they did and didn't turn up on Red Dwarf and one of them, Bexley, got killed and then a 170-year-old Lister came back and talked to this Lister, but also this Lister carried on and aged way beyond the point, blah, blah, blah. They can explain anything. (laughs) Okay, so Demons and Angels is uh, an example of, again, this smart 12-year-old boy going, right, everything that's great is basically a pacifist monk who lives on beans and uh, uh, does nothing but read poetry, and everything that's bad is like... Yeah, nasty, shitty horror movies, perversion, transvesticism, question mark, uh, all the other horrible things that this evil crew do. Oh, side note, by the way, we have to mention Starbug, which is uh, the shuttlecraft of Red Dwarf that they spend increasingly long amounts of time on. In the uh, earlier seasons, uh, from season two onwards, there was something called Blue Midget, which allowed them to make trips down to small moons. And then from season three onwards, basically for them to go, rather than waiting for something to come to Red Dwarf, they would journey out there and go and find something. And for season six, because the actual Red Dwarf model was genuinely destroyed, they were confined to Starbug looking for Red Dwarf. Uh, But it's this gorgeous model that's incredibly detailed, even though this thing was shot on video and looks... Oh, it looks like shit by today's standards. I lament the fact that the BBC didn't have the budget to have this shot on film. uh, Because, like, the original series of Friends looks great on Blu-ray now. But Red Dwarf, its HD upgrade wasn't even an HD upgrade. It has an extremely expensive, completely buggered Blu-ray set. Although they did start sending out discs uh, to replace the episodes, like, seasons three and four and five had interlacing problems so they looked like shit and they just printed thousands of these discs that looked like crap and they didn't know about it and it's just it looks terrible but starbug in these old model shots looks really good it's got this kind of green thunderbird 2 look to it and uh, there's a lot of close-ups and it's very detailed and it's, it stems from alien and star wars and and, and the work of dennis murin and jerry anderson and making ships have their own personality. And the Starbug, with its, like, great big, like, it's insect toy, but it's a bit, like, it's not streamlined and it's not cool-looking, is almost more Red Dwarf than the actual mining ship Red Dwarf. But back to Demons and Angels, what strikes you about this episode? Well, straight out of the gate, the (laughs) concept that they have this device that makes a perfect copy of anything, the triplicator, that makes two copies of the same thing, one of which is 
the absolute most divine, perfect representation of it, and the other ends up being the absolute worst version of of that what that thing could possibly be. That's kind of a neat idea. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely like that concept that this they have the capacity for certain types of technology that could really save them quite a lot of work and it could save them from starvation it could you know it could improve their lives in so many ways but it doesn't quite work exactly the way you would want it to as like so many red dwarf ideas kind of there but just not in a way that actually works and, and in a way that could possibly bite them in the ass in the end instead of actually helping them. Mm. Yes. It works yeah, for the exactly. comedy side of it, but less for the practicality and the actual sci-fi mm-hmm. side of it. All right. Yeah, yeah, a really neat idea that for the guys ends up kind of shit. To be fair, I think that's pretty much the tagline of the whole series. <laughs> <laughs> so the first ship they go to is is like sort of, ah, Brother Cat and Brother Lister, and they uh, they are comedically... I brought it out to Sharon. There's, it makes no sense that Crichton's good version is not wildly different from, from Crichton, Crichton anyway. Himself, no. But that Rimmer is just as much like that. There's no gradation in between. They're all basically the same person. Well, yeah. Like, you would imagine there isn't this much goodness in Rimmer. Well, that's the thing, though. They, they are Certainly the, not the cat. He's never are, unselfish. They are the most perfect versions of themselves... But the originals exist on a kind of sliding scale of perfection. And Crichton is probably closer to his angelic self. And Rimmer is closer to his demonic self. Closer to his demonic self than he would like to admit. Mm -hmm. Um, It's intriguing to me how far away Lister is from his demonic self. He is very different from that that person. He's right in the middle, being the everyman. Yeah, exactly. So he's not particularly angelic or demonic. But this this whole episode. Sorry. <laughs> this, this whole episode oh, for me kind of it, it. There's a line in Contact where uh, David Morse says, "You're capable of such um, incredible dreams and such terrible nightmares." This is the human condition. We are the demon on the shoulder and the angel on the other shoulder, and occasionally they agree, and then mm. that's, that's we are the ego. Risky. Yeah, exactly. Caught between being, super ego and it being pulled in two directions, and uh, you know, often more, but but fundamentally being pulled between this kind of this this duality mm. of man, and this is about sort of. How do you rescue this scenario? It's not as simple as we go with the angelic crew and and fly off Mm. in their wonderful ship because it has bits missing. Humans cannot be one end of the spectrum. There's a reason the original Star Trek and every season since then has been 45 minutes per episode because (laughs) you need a bit more time to examine this stuff. The setups in Red Dwarf are like, right, let's just get out of the gate quick. Give me some philosophical crumbs. You can work the rest of them out yourself. (laughs) Here's the scenario. Okay, now let's make with the jokes. And, uh, you know, uh, the service is mainly to comedy with a sci-fi bent and some philosophical stuff in there. Just that there's as long as you don't go in there expecting it, you'll get more than you expected. But if you if if you're the kind of person who absorbs the comedy side of it and then kind of runs with the philosophical underpinnings of that comedy, hmm. then what you end up with is what this what I realised as we were watching it. This this show has done for me, which is pretty much formulate the way I look at. Humor, the world, people, 
so much. One of the reasons I'm terrified of watching the later episodes is because I'm like, it's going to totally upend everything I built on, isn't it? Understandable. <laughs> uh, you guys? Okay, so, so we can confirm that if... Sharon ever encounters a perfect version of her world and her life, the first thing she's going to do is check the automated, the automated food maker to see if it makes a perfect pot noodle. Nice. <laughs> okay, so the evil ship, does anyone want to describe the uh, denizens there? It's basically the Red Dwarf crew slathered in oil. <laughs> <laughs> and not in a good way, like Rimmer. Like, oil, it's you just mean lots engine and grease. Lots of dirty oil has been <laughs> spread all over them and they've all for some reason meant to have weirdly comically evil accents that range and I could be wrong but it sounds like it ranges somewhere from like the deep south to London and there's kind of nothing in between. I think it's very good. I actually think it's it's really quite funny because I think all all of them get to really hack it up mm. much more than they don't well. it. You get Rimmer cosplaying as Dr. Frankenfurter. Mm. Yeah. That's probably bit, the yeah. most like charitable way of putting it. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's it's not the best. Um, also, I do kind of love the fact that the bad version of Cat has these enormous canines, and half the time it looks like they are just falling out of his mouth. It's so funny. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think on the good side, where they effectively just dress as monks, that was the easy option to take. Not, but not the wrong one, but I think it was the easiest option to take, just to make them quasi-religious looking. Mm. Um, whereas on the evil side, they just they went to town. They also possibly chucked in a few stereotypes, which is maybe a little bit problematic mm. as well. As I said, with the whole Frankenfurter thing, I think there was part of me that went, looking at that now, feels slightly wrong in a way yeah. that's how it was. that's how bad was seen. Whereas I don't yeah. think that would be mm-hmm. the case now. Exactly. That's that's the part that is the cringy bit of it, is that the the quote-unquote worst version of Rimmer is the one where he's basically a... A, a, a sexual predator. I, I don't even want to say it, but the, the T word. Yeah. yeah. Well, and but he, specifically, he's a sexual said, predator, like, which was where, where, where trans panic mm. came from. The unreasonable paranoia of certain cishet straight people comes from exactly the same place as the rationale that... A gay person's wildest desire is to rape a straight person. Yes. Yeah, because there's a bit where he's threatening a normal Lister, and he mm. says, well, and then I'll have you. And I'm like, wait a minute. Uh, on the other hand, if Rimmer is so uptight about sex all the time, that may be, like, in his mind, he perceives, like, the worst thing that could possibly happen to him as a cishet male is for him to turn out to be gay. Yeah. And, but like, they to don't challenge people. Rimmer by confronting him with that. Mm. No. Hmm. So, yeah, missed opportunity and also kind of shitty by today's standards. There's some puzzling definitions of good and and of bad in this. Like, if you go to the... They've got these awful foods in their cupboards. But then when you listen to... Check out their music, there's no, like, Motorhead or Iron Maiden or what you would consider the opposite of a peaceful monastic existence quote-unquote bad music they've got like reggie wilson's tango treats or something along those lines in this instance they equate bad with mediocrity and banality one assumes because of the writing that the high ship would have things like mozart or mentavani but mozart himself was a filthy fucker and a lot of his music is devilish and sexually charged (laughs) 
and everyone on the high ship is so naive that when they start getting attacked, they just sort of walk towards their enemy talking about how much they love them. Right. When you're talking about the superego and the id, yeah. right, the id is where your survival instincts come from. Okay. So if you don't have any id, you don't have any survival instincts. All you can do, if, if you are purely operated by superego, all you can do is follow the guidelines that you've been given and the moral outline that you've been told you should live your life by. Mm. Your own survival instincts will not come into play at all. And that's, that's my point. That, to me, is the point of this whole episode episode is that to be human you have to have some balance of both you mm. need both elements to be able to um to to progress and exist and have anything that is is really worth experiencing and this when you said about the the music my argument would be the reason they don't have any like hendrix. heavy metal and hendrix and stuff like that is because there are heavenly elements in those uh, artists and the music that they created mm. they are not purely crap which is what the the uh, the low ship consists of it's not about nothing works there yeah it's it's not about um it's not about god and satan these are not they're not separated by religious ideals albeit that the um the highs are kind of um they're they're moral philosophically not according to any specific religious um outline but the uh, the lows are not satanic. They're just nothing works, nothing functions. Mm. So, of course, their music isn't going to function either. All that being said, the last third of this 30-minute episode descends into Lister is being mind-controlled by the lows, yeah. and he eats a spider, pours <laughs> coffee on his genitals, yep. uh, and then tries to it kill the rest of his crew. Slapstick. So, but But anyone could do that yes. there's no exploration of the highs and the the, the lows and, and being able to bring them together like mm. philosophically speaking it abandons thinking yeah. once we get to meet the lows and mm. I, I do think the introductory scene when they take some of the people from the good ship across to the bad ship mm. is brilliant because the bad guys just start shooting straight away there's not any pretense of hey, how are you doing? We're bad. Do you want to get a shot? They just go for it. (laughs) And I love the way that all the good people are just like, oh, your gun appears to have accidentally gone off. It keepeth shooting people. (laughs) (laughs) He has a faulty gun. Oh, how I love him. In many ways, this episode ends up kind of like the evil dead. As Lister, who's playing Ash, is confronted with twisted, demonic versions of his crewmates and himself. And he's horribly put through the ringer and loses all control. You guys are two letters short of an allotment. What do you want there? We want your vessel. Nothing works here, man. Everything is in decay. And here is how we're going to get it. No way are you part of me. Oh, yes, he is. He's the little boy who used to pull the legs off incense. He's the little boy who, on a hot summer's day, held a magnifying glass to his best friend's neck and watched him. (laughs) He's the part of you that wants all your friends to fail. The part of you that loves to watch horror movies. The part of you that lusts after meaningless sex. (laughs) He's cruel. He's selfish. He thinks terrible things. (laughs) Do 
Okay, number six, back to reality. The last episode of season five, and honestly, before season six came out, you could watch this and feel like it was the last episode of Red Dwarf. Like, you could even show it to someone and not tell them that there were more episodes after that, and it it, it feels like believable enough as the last episode uh, the crew encounter a giant squid with an alarming defense mechanism they then wake up to find that the past few years of spacefaring has in fact been a video simulation much like uh, an earlier uh, episode there was better than life video games which are kind of a thing you can lose yourself in it's very kind of matrix or uh, ready player one if you will but uh, people just spending years in a video game simulation. This episode is generally considered to be one of the best of the entire series run. It has been described as a classic that questions our certainty about what is real. Another review said that it was one of the best and most clever episodes ever made. Here we see the birth of Dwayne Dibley, Nuff said. And what did I tell you? Glove puppets and goofy teeth. That's what us Red Dwarf fans like, apparently. Dwayne Dibley? Dwayne Dibley? As it turns out, the cat is not cool at all. They are presented with nightmare versions of themselves when they come out. The cat is just a, a, a goofball, and he's disgusted with himself. Uh, Rimmer is uh, a man named Billy Doyle, who's just kind of a scruffian. Um, but at the same time, he is the brother of uh, Lister's Sebastian Doyle, who is extremely well off. And thus, he doesn't have the excuses to make about, well, you know, considering the way I started. Although, interestingly, since Rimmer's brothers all did very well for themselves, that's always been the case with him. Mm. That that l- excuse of, well, you know, look at how I started, that's always been just kind of a, a limp excuse. I suppose this is a way for him to be forced to confront that. Mm. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, for Lister, the worst version of him is a man who is a fascist and actually uh, helps totalitarian, oppressive society to kill people. And this disgusts Lister on a fundamental level, although he sees a, a different version of himself in the game being better than him and like, hey, Kachansky, shut up, and then kissing her, which, by the way, that is a version of Red Dwarf no one would watch. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, absolutely not. Because you can't relate to other, anyone there. I think the other aspect of this version of Lister mm. is that he's very anti-authority. Yeah. And in this version, he is the authority. Indeed. And as Crichton says later, he's always prided himself on being a very uh, a decent, good man, which is a big revelation. If you've been watching for five seasons, you like Lister being that much of a slob. You're like, you couldn't just kind of, you know, relax into this lifestyle. But the fact that he objects to his his character of Sebastian on a moral level suggests that Lister really deep down inside is a good man. You could pair that up with the him knowing deep down that he had it in him to do something worthwhile but chose not to yeah. and infer that Lister could have done great things but was afraid to in case those great things ended up hurting people. Yeah. And Crichton is uh, half-human, like a Robocop type, uh, called Jake Bullet, who uh, a cop who works for traffic control. Uh, and ultimately, he's actually quite pleased with who he is, but because of circumstances, ends up killing a fascist, but a, a human nonetheless, which is enough to make him decide, I'm just going to kill myself. Yeah, Crichton, I think Crichton's build-up. Because initially, at the start, they all don't know who they are and they can't remember. Hmm. And they all get a case to see this is the person. And I absolutely love the Crichton's build-up to, oh, I'm 
you know, I'm a corner cutter, I'm, I'm the best of the best, I'm, <laughs> I'm proper law enforcement. Oh, that's traffic control. That's traffic control. <laughs> yeah. They so wanted Alan Rickman for that one guy. <laughs> well, I like that they even made that joke earlier. He's like, we don't even know what that means. That could just be traffic control. Yeah. Nice. Just to seed that so that it, it plays at that point. Uh, they also get a really long explanation uh, that they've been playing Red Dwarf so badly that they have only got 4% by the great Timothy Spall, who has got a lot of exposition to go through, but this is the dictionary definition of the dwarfers being presented with better versions of themselves, or at least being confronted with, we are shit versions of ourselves. We can't even red dwarf well. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. This also, uh, this character who, you know, wakes them up from playing the the VR game that they, in the simulation, it looks like they have failed, Mm. He is like, he's like every gaming YouTube commentator. Like he's a YouTube comment in human form mm-hmm. that tells that <laughs> all, all he does clue. is exist to tell you all the ways that you played the game wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and the intricacies that get outlined about what the Red Dwarf game consisted of. Was anybody else thinking LucasArts? Yeah. yeah, no, I, yeah. I see where you're coming from with that one. No, yeah. I definitely yeah. was. There, there were. Uh, it's funny. I haven't watched this episode in so long, but so many elements of it felt incredibly relevant mm. for a variety of reasons. But this character, like you were saying, yeah, the Lucas Arts, the Lucas Film thing. I immediately thought of you know all of the YouTube commentators who say how you've played the game wrong and it's actually good at red dwarf yeah exactly you gotta get good (laughs) it's like you could you could imagine he's just at home playing dark souls for hours and hours on twitch and spouting off some kind of fascist rhetoric that he's absorbed (laughs) from this universe i'm not a hologram i'm half human what the hell happened to my teeth from beer bottles with my overbite. <laughs> All right, lads, how you feeling? Bit wonky? Perfectly normal. We'll be right as rain in 20 minutes. So, if you could just move through to the recuperation lounge, I can get things ready for the next lot. The next lot? There's a very popular game, it's Red Dwarf. It's got a two-year waiting list. And we've got 20 machines. So, how'd you get killed then? Some kind of squid. The despair squid? There's no way that should have killed you. Why don't you use the laser cannons? It's obvious. Well, Starbuck doesn't... didn't have a laser cannon capability. You twonk. Use the laser cannons on the crash... What's it? Uh, Esperanto. That's how you get out of it. How were we supposed to know that, you brummy git? <laughs> Esperanto. That's a clue, isn't it? Esperanto. Hope. Hope defeats despair. The despair squid. It's a blatant clue, isn't it? Blatant's... Blimey heck, if you didn't get that, you must have been playing like puddings. <laughs> Which one was playing Lister then? Me. Did you get Kajanski? Was I supposed to? <laughs> supposed to? That's the objective of the game for Lister, you twonk. <laughs> I mean, you're separated to begin with, then basically, it's a love story across time, space, death and reality. You must have got the easy stuff, that. Here, what did you think of the planet of the nymphomaniacs? <laughs> the planet of the what? But you missed that. Oh, that's the right thing. Some people spend years on that. Which one was Rimmer? Me. 
always amazing, isn't it? She can say that again. How long did it take you to suss him out, then? Oh, I had him sussed right from the beginning. Well, really? You found the captain's message right away? <laughs> what captain's message? The one that's sitting in the microdot in the eye in Rimmer's swimming certificate. Well, that's the clue, isn't it? Rimmer having a swimming certificate and not being able to swim. And that's a clue? It's a blatant clue, isn't it? A blatant clue to what? A blatant clue to the truth behind Rimmer. What truth? The truth to why he's such an insufferable prat. <laughs> that's because of his parents, his upbringing, his background, the fact he was never loved. No, no, no. Yes, yes, yes. No, no, no. Yes, yes, yes. No! <laughs> what was it, then? He was a hand-picked special agent for the Space Corps. It has memory arrays and was programmed to act like a complete swank. So no one suspect he was on a secret mission to destroy Red Dwarf in order to guide Lister to his destiny as creator of the second universe. You what? Yeah. You know that bit where Lister jump starts the second big bang with jump leads from Starbuck? Jump starts the second big bang. Well, that's the final irony, isn't it? Lister, the ultimate atheist, turns out in fact to be God. What? It's all in the captain's message, it's all in the microdots. Hang on a minute. Are you, are you seriously telling me you were playing the Pratt version of Rimmer for all that time? For four years? Oh, well, that's a classic, Daddy. That's a classic. It, it does kind of draw you in on an existential level and kind of if it gets you thinking and, and you, you bring it away with you because effectively at the end, as it turns out, the squid had doused the, the crew in an ink which makes you feel like the worst version of yourself and then its victims commit suicide uh, and they're about to do that and they, they go through this big elaborate car chase which is like in the BBC creaky way of like, why have a car chase? when you could just sit on some crates and then pretend yeah, to have a car chase. Cut back to the ship and show them in a very community theatre way, like everybody line up like you would in a car and do all the little <laughs> motions with Hilly in the background going, you're hallucinating. Guys, you're hallucinating. This is a hallucination. You are not actually in this space. Like, please wake up. Now that you mention Hilly, I really wish that there had been... I think White Hole might be one of the few ones which... Hattie Haydridge gets to have a Holly episode. There really aren't that many. Yeah, that, which, uh, which is a great her. episode. Yeah. Absolutely top-notch episode. I feel like we'll be covering that soon. I suspect the crew are beginning to doubt I've got an IQ of 6,000. Ridiculous. To doubt me, who solved the ultimate enigma, the riddle of the purpose of existence. Oh, bugger me, it's gone. <laughs> like, kind of ranting about how they played the game wrong comes in later because they do eventually, like, he kept saying, you didn't try and find Kachansky? That's the whole point of your character. Hmm. And in the later seasons, they do bother to go try and find Kachansky. Yeah. And they're uh, always wondering, like, if that kind of, like, influenced Lister to kind of focus up. Like I said, this is this is one of the uh, the sharpest confrontations with his own misgivings and all of them. I mean, aside from Cat, Cat's never really challenged. Cat's just, like... Everything seems... Cat is... It's like if you put a cat in a, a bad costume, a real cat, then it will wander around going, something's wrong, I don't like this at all, I don't have my cat-like grace. I I always got the impression that Cat was a character that initially they had a really... They thought this could be really cool, and then once it was in the series, it went, actually, I've got no idea what to do <laughs> with this person, apart from just, like, let's say he's really vain. Hmm. And then, because I mean, even in this series, he doesn't 
do a lot apart from there to kind of give one-liners mm. and see how good he looks. Mm. Well, he's a relatively he's, he's one... good for he's good for sight gags. Mm. Yeah, he's a relatively one-note joke, and when he in the earlier seasons he was much more explicitly cat-like, like they could distract him with string. Ow, yeah, marigolds with blue. Are you crazy? <laughs> we have to do this for anyway we've only been doing it 10 minutes 10 minutes too long we've got to do it all day what all day the whole entire day what about my naps i'm a cat i need to nap if i don't nap nine or ten times a day i don't have enough energy for my main snooze (laughs) Uh, he gets by on the fact that danny john jules is charming as hell he is he really is and has great delivery and he has some of the most fantastic costumes Mm. of anyone in the series (laughs) the outfits that they put him in are so over the top and Mm. they're great but again like this is what i mean about it being written by a 12 year old boy that's smart it's a 12 year old boy that's a geek and to make a figure of fun, he created a train spotter. Just another geek, but lower down the hierarchy. It's kind of mean. It's like, like when they, they, Dwayne comes back later and it's like, you know, thermos flask and one triple thick condom. You never know. Uh, but it's, it, it's, it's basically like it's, it's kind of kicking downwards at a, uh, a less socially adept version of a geek. And that's all the Dwayne Dibley gag is, which is why I object to the idea that this is a perfect episode because of Dwayne Dibley. No, hollow ship. The the fact that the big joke is he's not as good looking in real life as he thinks he is, kind of is, you do it once, that's the one note, and then, okay... But what's what else is there? Mm. Not much. I mean, it's 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 fun and honestly, Dwayne like it, Dwayne Dibley and specifically Danny's performance in that. And I think yeah. honestly, it's that the audience scream with laughter at his massive overbite um, and, and mm-hmm. just the 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 fact that they don't overplay it too much and they're they're quite you know, like they just they have just enough and then they ease back off it. So it's I, I don't not find Dwayne Dibley funny, but it's it's. There's smarter things in yeah, there. Yeah, it, it is a bit mean, but I do think half the humour in Dwayne Dibley is not Dwayne himself. It's how the cat reacts mm. at the fact that he's got to be him. True. But it's important to note that everyone in Red Dwarf is a colossal nerd. Yes. Even Cat, mm-hmm. he's just a clothes nerd. Yeah. And uh, he's also, like, the the sole arbiter of his own race. Like, there's something in there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'm kind of looking forward to this episode where Cat gets an episode. I, I don't know what uh, we're ga- we're going to get from that. But um, season five, I think, r- will remain as my, like, go-to starting point for, for Red Dwarf. Because um, it's, it's snappy and fast. And the episodes go by like that. And even yeah. like, even if there's a bit where you're like, oh, I'm not sure about that, it's gone almost immediately. It afterwards. goes very quickly, so yeah. Fast, yeah. Yeah. Well, that was a bloody good show, boys. Just time to thank our $15 patrons who get sponsor credit every episode. So thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Sabard, Michael Hasco, Matthew Webb, Connor Kennedy, Angus Lee, Marty Huey, David Sheely, Kevin Vey, Daniel Salguero, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, 
Joga Seeger, Greg Downing, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lutsch, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, Frankie Punzi, and Lorraine Chisholm. This is an SOS distress call from the mining ship Red Dwarf. The crew are dead, killed by a radiation leak. The only survivors were Dave Lister, who was in suspended animation during the disaster, and his pregnant cat, who was safely sealed in the hold. Revived three million years later, Lister's only companions are alive for... Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm not usually rude. Before we go, Cat, would you like to point people in the direction of other work you're doing? Um, I'm pretty boring, actually. I don't do a lot, but I am. It's, it's a banner weekend for me because I'm recording this podcast and I'm actually guesting on another one tomorrow. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, that's a podcast called Graphically Novel, and what they do is they take um, a graphic novel that's been adapted into some form of media, and they will talk about that media and the corresponding comic and whether they recommend you kind of dig into that comic more. Cool. And we're doing... Um, we're doing Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of Harley Quinn. One of my favourite films of the year, and we've only seen six films. <laughs> no, what? we really loved it. It's uh, so I'm yeah, awesome. I'm ecstatic. I get. A, I'm gonna you know talk about it for you know too long probably tomorrow. But um, and then we're contrasting that with one of the Gail Simone uh, Birds of Prey comics. So I can kind of talk about the changes that they made between the characters and stuff. I'm really excited about it. Excellent. That sounds awesome. So what was that name again? Graphically Novel. Graphically there's, Novel. Yep, there's two uh, podcasts called that. The one that I'm on is the one that has like a microphone logo. <laughs> We're at that I, stage I, now where you got multiple podcasts called the same thing. Damn. Well, yeah, my buddy went to set it up and he like created an LLC and went through all the process. And a week before their first episode went live... This group of guys decided to make their own and put theirs up. And he's like, no. Holy shit. <laughs> he did the Google search and everything. Yeah, he'd done everything right. And then like right before, like the week before they were going to go live, somebody else just threw one together real fast. This was why we were called Digital Gonzo for ages. Because I was trying to make a Google whack of two words that hadn't met each other before mm-hmm. and were unlikely to ever since. But then when you call yourself something strange, people find it difficult to find you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Or work out what, or you work out what you're about. Yeah, so we just went with School of Movies. Okay, so, uh, Derek, are you, have you been in anything recently? Um, the only thing that I've been in recently is one of your shows, a, the next Resident Evil show. Uh, and apart from that, I'm, I'm very much just on Twitter at the new Del Boy. I think we're going to put out the Resident Evil show after Red Dwarf because this was so much fun that I want to get this out soon. So, yeah, um, I'll just say you can hear uh, Derek uh, in our Resident Evil Nemesis show coming very soon, folks. Uh, Okay, so, Maya, um, I would say, have you done anything recently since... uh, Are you allowed to leave the house? What's what's up? No. Uh, (laughs) um, You can leave the house for essentials, but as, as you probably have guessed, because... Production work is such a 
you know, it has such a, a wide range of people and all having to work in close quarters. Productions pretty much across the nation are still shut down, as they well should be, because that creates one of those Petri dish scenarios that we don't want to get into. Mm-hmm. However, uh, a, a series that I briefly did some stunt work for just released on Netflix like a, a few days ago. It released on the 15th of April. It's called Outer Banks. It is a teen drama. I have not seen it myself, but since people are kind of in quarantine at this point and might be looking for something new and different to stream, it should be widely available on Netflix. It was a it was made specifically for that platform and it has recent released. So that's something new that I was briefly a part of that you could check out if you are so inclined. It also seems to be doing pretty well as far as the feedback I'm getting audience feedback seems to be fairly high. So might be a a fun teen drama to binge uh, for a night or two as a distraction from all this craziness. We will be back with more School of Movies next week, and we'll be back with more Red Dwarf if you folks demand it. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. Okay, homeboys, let's posse. I'm not doing the shaky hands. I refuse to do the shaky hands. I'm too motivational.